0: now, the rationalist community still exists. Recently, it has come under attack by wokeism. And it's specifically the brand of wokeism that's attacked rationality is the sort of, um, you know, the anti-racism IQ denial um, brand of wokeism, right? It's like, you know, the, the thing is, like, humans are just remarkably easy to persuade, Right? And not even just to persuade. I mean, a lot of humans um, actually don't care about either what's true or what's right. They just care about which way the wind is blowing. We basically need Western conservatives to just all be force-fed Hanania's articles. Hi, hi, welcome,
1: welcome. This is the season finale of the From the New World podcast. And, if you've been listening for a long time, you probably know what's in store. Many hours of intense, but fundamental and important disagreement on an issue that matters to me. And, if you like the show, hopefully, which matters to you. Today's guest is Rocco Miech, a rationalist and someone who's had a lot of internal disagreements with other people in that community now also forming much more of an alliance or an affiliation with the dissident right as well. We look at both of those tensions, those movements, as well as other related topics, in feminization, housing, the future of effective altruism, Nick Bostrom, rationality, and what kind of orientation to seeking the truth is necessary for a movement like that to exist at all. You can probably tell this is something that I have very strong thoughts on as well, and is especially important for people who affiliate themselves with any of these movements and have those kinds of interests going forward. Today's ask is a little bit different than normal. Usually I just ask you to share with a friend, and that's great this time as well. But I'm actually looking at this moment to expand the show by hiring someone to do uh, two things. Hopefully someone who's able to do both of them. One is to effectively book guests for the show. That's something that I'm running out of time for. And at the same time also uh, post clips and things like that to other social media platforms. If you or someone you know has those skills, and I'm sure they're, they're reasonably easy to learn as well. If you or someone you know has those skills. Uh, please feel free to message me on any platform, Substack and Twitter, uh, or email as well, uh, or use the form that should be linked in the show notes. Either either is fine, and I would appreciate people kind of referring other people, uh, even if you know you're not a direct listener of the show as well. Without further ado, here is Rocco Miech. Friedrich Nietzsche, overrated or
0: underrated? Oh, um, actually, I think underrated.
1: Underrated, okay, underrated, yeah.
0: Although I have to, I have to caveat that with, with I haven't actually read Nietzsche. (laughs)
1: Great, great, yeah. Um,
0: We like reading underrated
1: underrated by you as well, right?
0: (laughs) Reading Nietzsche is probably overrated. Nietzsche's ideas are underrated.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, so. The way I kind of heard of you uh, is uh, kind of detailing the fall of rationality as a, as a kind of movement. Um, I'm not sure what you would call it political movement, not really kind of uh, social movement. I don't know. Uh, and more recently, uh, talking about uh, effective altruism, which is of course connected. Uh, so so let's let's dive into that. What do you think? Or let's say first of all, what is the kind of rationality movement? Uh, and then second of all, uh, what has happened to it over the years?
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, so I mean, I wouldn't quite say that rationality has fallen, right? Um, but it's certainly taken some hits. So what is, what is rationality? I mean, rationality as a, as a modern movement, um, started with people like Robin Hansen, Nick Bostrom and Eliezer Yudkowsky, um, who came together on the overcoming bias blog and um they started sort of um they, they started trying to you know systematically make people more correct um in the sort of map territory uh, sense right so so what i mean by that is you know you believe things not because of how they make you sound or because of how they make you feel but because the patterns uh, in your head correspond like a map corresponds to a land. So, you know, a map is a very special uh, type of drawing that one can create on a piece of paper in that it is isomorphic, you know, there's literally a mathematical isomorphism to the land that uh, that is around you, right? Um, and they said, look, it's actually, although people claim to like the truth, um, when people talk about the truth, they often, you know, they're often not actually talking about things that are literally true in the same way as a map is isomorphic to the territory, right? Sometimes truth can mean uh, justice or goodness or things that make you feel good, or maybe um, things that motivate you. Um, you know, there's like a whole different list of things that people will label with the with the term true, but you know that, that are not true in the same way as if you get you know a good old fashioned paper map. And compare it to the land around you. Um, so, so that was the idea behind, um, rationality, overcoming bias, and then later less wrong. Now, um, this is a sort of intersection of a couple of different interests from Hansen, Yudkowski, Bostrom. Yudkowski was interested in rationality, um, because he was interested in sort of, um, course correcting what he would call like tech utopians who thought and many still do think that technology will make our lives better uh without any kind of limits or caveats that you know like more is better bostrom i think is also on this train of uh trying to sort of rein in um overzealous tech optimists uh hansen um is He's more of a pure truth for truth's sake type. Um, he got interested in this when he studied the economics of medical spending and a couple of other topics in uh, economics where it's really hard to explain the choices that people make. Um, unless you really sort of radically depart from the idea of people saying things because those things are true or wanting things because those things actually represent genuinely better states of the world for them. So I think Hansen's idea with medical spending was that is just, it just doesn't make economic sense the way people spend money on medical care if the goal of that medical care is health, right? So Hansen's first x is not about y was medical spending is not about health it's about showing that you care right so yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter whether I think it works my audience, yeah.
1: my audience will be by far the most familiar with robin because he's been on the show twice okay right <laughs> yeah and cool. will leave that in the in the notes as well yeah okay so yes
0: so you had this confluence of hansen uh x is not about y you versus kurzweil where it was sort of like Kurzweil was saying everything's going to be great and Yudkowski's saying, no, we're going to create a paperclip maximizer that's going to turn us all into goo and it's going to be terrible unless we solve like, some very specific uh, mathy problems about AI alignment. Uh, and then you had Bostrom um, with this idea of uh, long-termism and um, ensuring the long term future benefit of humanity this idea that we're at a sort of crucial time in the development not just of humanity but of life itself um and so all of these things came together into rationality right um robin hanson wrote the sequences uh, sorry uh, Eliezer yudkowski pardon me wrote the sequences which are a long series of blog co- blog posts on less wrong robin hanson has a long series on overcoming bias um and, you know, there's a lot of different topics in there, but they all basically come down to uh, this idea of pursuing uh, truth in the correspondence theory sense that we want to believe what's true because it's true, right? Um, and, you know, even if perhaps in some cases, uh, believing what's true might not even be optimal uh, from the point of view of getting what we want, um, it still sort of makes sense for some people to just really dedicate their lives to truth because it's astounding how far human society can deviate from truth due to various uh sort of social feedbacks where you have people uh believing things because they think other people want them to believe those things and other people claim to want them to believe those things because they think other people want them to claim people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? You get into these sort of bad epistemology spirals. I think Nick Bostrom has a term for them. It's like, uh, epistemic cascades, I think. Um, when, right.
1: You know, uh, so, yeah, uh, Timur on an economist, has the term preference cascade. Pre- sorry, preference. Right. Yeah,
0: well, there's, there's preference cascades, but I think Boston also talked about sort of, you know, these epistemic cascades where I think his example was you, I oh, information cascades. That was it. So you, you have this case where people are lost in the countryside and, you know, they don't know which way to go. They come to a fork in the road um, and then people... Sort of choose one fork, and they put little little signs. You know, they put little arrows on the sign saying this is the right way, and so everyone ends up going that way, and they all walk off a cliff together because like <laughs> the first one chose that. But then there are also these preference cascades where, um, you know, somebody says, "Well, I really want there to be more, um, I don't know. Let me, I'll, I'll choose something. Um, I'll choose something innocuous. I really want there to be more vegetarian food." Um, at our meetings and I personally you know in my own mind I hate vegetarian food but I want to be the kind of person who says they like vegetarian food because that has <laughs> good signaling properties right uh, so I say I want there to be more vegetarian food and then everyone agrees they're all like yeah definitely we should definitely have more vegetarian food and you know eventually this gets to the stage where meat is completely banned from the menu now that sounds crazy but it's actually I recently tweeted something uh, and they've, they've actually done this in Scotland they've banned meat from all, um, official functions. So they ban it from hospitals. They ban it from government buildings. It's just completely banned, right? So if you're in hospital, you can't get meat. That's it. Really? Okay. <laughs> wow. In Scotland, right? You just not allowed meat because somebody wanted to signal that they're a virtuous person and that just sort of cascaded. And now, you know, everyone's eating fucking lettuce all the time, right? Is that
1: true? Like, I'll have to. I'll have to look into that. Every time I see these kinds of stories, I think, you know, like that, that can't possibly That seems
0: a bit extreme. I mean, it does yeah, seem yeah. a bit extreme, but I mean, I can, I can find the source for you. Um, sure, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, let, me, let me, see. Um, so the source, um, you know, Edinburgh makes vegan menu mandatory in government institutions. Um, and let me see if I can, uh, Right.
1: So something interesting, something interesting that happens with these dynamics, right, is that the number of people who are who are kind of falsifying their preferences, who are saying something they don't actually believe, um, increases the likelihood that other people are going to make those same preferences, right, or going to state those same preferences. So there might be people who um, who wouldn't naturally, you know, wouldn't volunteer and say, you know, I prefer vegan food. But if if all of their friends are doing it, like you said, that's going to increase the likelihood that they are. And this can happen not just on a kind of uh, smaller social scale, but on the civilizational scale. Yeah. Which um, Timur, Timur Quran talks about in his book, uh I always forget the order, um, but it's either pr- Public and public Lies, Private Truths, or yeah. Private Truths, Public Lies. It's one of the I th- two. I
0: think it's the first one. But anyway, I, I sent you the link to that. It does seem to be from reputable news sources like uh, First Post um, and The National. Uh, the National is a, is a pretty reputable newspaper in Scotland, so uh, I think it's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, so a lot of things happen in groups of humans that are not... People saying things because they think those things are true. In fact, sometimes I even get the impression that people don't even know what it means for something to be true. Like, and 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 sometimes when I talk to the the current generation of large language models, I get that same <laughs> feeling. Right? They don't even they don't even know what's true. They're just saying whatever makes sense within context. Um, mo- you know, are most people in fact NPCs? Comes to mind. Yeah. Now, the rationalist community still exists, but, you know, recently it has come under attack by wokeism, right? And it's specifically the brand of wokeism that's attacked rationality is the sort of, um, you know, the anti-racism, IQ denial um, brand of wokeism, right? It's like, um, you know... I
1: thought... I thought, I don't know, you're much more knowledgeable about this than I do, but I thought there was a kind of intermediate phase, right? There, there was an intermediate phase where there were kind of like dubious concerns about, you know, like gender equality and rape. And you know, like I'm I'm against rape if it if it can be proven. Right. You know, but once again, you actually have to have a standard of yeah, evidence right. so so like that you have with murder, right? Yeah, yeah. There
0: was also this phase that um the whole world went through, the like believe all women phase and right. the EA movement attracted a serial accuser woman, uh, called Kathy, who accused a number of people of sexual assault. Um, including myself, in fact, her accusation was that I, I touched her leg at a party once, and she made a huge blog post about this, and, like, you know... But this this only came to light after she'd killed herself, and, you know, then at the same time, you know, it, it emerged that this person had made a number of accusations against many different people. Like, I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to name names, but basically pretty much a who's who's who of everyone who's prominent in uh in rationality and ea and who's also male was accused of sexually assaulting this one uh relatively unattractive fat woman who killed um so you know it kind of went through that phase um and I mean, like, there was there was a phase of this earlier as well in the very early 20 uh, teens, um, where, you know, the Less Wrong website um, sort of heavily promoted. So, so there, there's kind of like a cultural battle line between um, the sort of third wave feminists and the sort of red pill crowd, you know, that the. the um, the energy that's kind of like currently embodied by Andrew Tate that kind of thing um <laughs> and there was sort of like a battle about that and the feminist types won and there was this sort of um at the time seem seemingly wise idea on less wrong um that you can't have any political content on less wrong because not because politics misleads people but at, you know actually. So so you might think the idea that politics leads people to false beliefs is a reason to talk about politics so that you can correct people's false beliefs, you see. But actually, the idea was that, no, you know, instead of trying to correct people's false beliefs, we should actually just not talk about the subjects at all, because it's like such an inflammatory set of subjects that even talking about it would pollute the very project of rationality. So you couldn't have a debate between, say, a third wave feminist and a red pillar on Less Wrong, because you know, that would kind of derail the project of rationality. But I feel like what actually happened was they just sort of let the feminists win by default, um, at least on you know a number of topics, basically because that crowd has more power in the real world and they didn't want to be on the losing side, which, you know, I mean, I can kind of understand that to some extent. And I feel like what's going on in effective altruism today with the Uh, So there's been this thing where Nick Bostrom had an old email where he said the N word. And no, I'm not talking about negative utilitarianism um, in an email, right. uh, From 1994 (laughs) or something. And everyone's going nuts about it. Then there was this uh, furore with this um, Timnit Gebru woman who was like the diversity queen uh at Google. Yes, yes,
1: I, I will have I will have an upcoming article eventually about, you know, all of the ML fraudsters. Yeah. Um yeah. People who have clearly no technical qualifications, clearly, <laughs> you know I th- I think there was there's this deleted Twitter thread that where she confesses to defrauding Google. <laughs> um uh, allegedly, allegedly defrauding right. Google, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, "Why are why are all of my diversity hires, you know, getting bad performance metrics? I, <laughs> I really wonder." No. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, yeah. This, this was. Oh dear, oh dear. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, so anyway, um, there's there's been this sort of friction from the relatively early days, even before I was involved, where um, you know, you, you have a movement that wants to prioritize truth, but it inevitably comes up against the political ramifications of truth being so powerful, so dangerous to those in power that the movement has to self-censor, right? Yeah. Many um, such cases in history. Many yeah. such cases. Um, you know, including, you know, I believe Galileo had to self censor. Um, right. you know, and those who didn't, Giordano Bruno, you know, were actually killed for it. I and mean, that may be a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, but there's, you know, there was certainly was.
1: Well, in history, no, right? In history, certainly there have been many, yeah. um, executions driven because of inconvenient truths.
0: Yes. Heresy, basically. Exactly. Um, so what, so when you have a move, you know, I mean, like, Let's just step back, you know, a level and and think about this abstractly, right? When you have a society of human beings, um, the beliefs that happen to be true are not always going to be the optimal beliefs for whichever faction has the most power at any given point in time, right? And and that's true, you know, pretty much whatever happens to be true and whoever happens to be in power, there's always going to be something that the people in power want to cover up right, want people not to believe. So you always have this problem with any kind of truth-seeking movement, science, rationality, whatever, it's going to butt up against this. And probably in fairly major ways, because the things that people want to cover up most are not sort of randomly selected truths. They're truths whose utility implications are the highest, right? Because if something doesn't have particularly high expected utility, you know, upon updating your beliefs to it, then it can't really be that important. And if it's not really that important, it probably isn't really that dangerous to the people who have power, right? So, yeah. you know, you end up with um, this, this sort of funny effect of, um, you know, scientists in, say, the 16th century who can predict, um, you know, how a metal ball will fall down a slope, which maybe isn't very important, but they're not allowed to predict that the solar system is heliocentric. Which is kind of more important, right? Because it has like implications. You know, people are being told that the Earth is the center of the universe. That's it's kind of important for science at that stage to tell people, no, that's actually not true, right? But they couldn't say that because you know. So you see, you get into this right. it was question.
1: You know, question their predominant yeah. theories of how the Earth was created.
0: Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah, go on. So, so I think kind of rationality uh, and the overcoming bias movement and all this is all being caught up in this sort of dynamic of those who seek out truth will very quickly find themselves in conflict with power. Um, and, you know, Bostrom, there's an attempt to cancel Bostrom. There was an attempt to cancel uh, Robin Hanson. In fact, he was cancelled. He had a talk at an effective altruism group somewhere in Europe. I think it was Munich. Um, and they cancelled his talk because of some posts where I think, I think this was the feminists who got him, uh, where he had a post about like gentle, silent rape. I, not like endorsing it. <laughs> But like using it, right?
1: In right some yeah, it was, of, it was a thought experiment, right? so for the viewers, yeah, you know, it, it, the thought experiment is something like, you know, you probably heard the famous thought experiment if a tree fell in the forest and yes. no one, yeah, no one heard it, right. you know, would anyone know? And he's just making the same case basically about rape, right? If someone is, is raped, that person is completely unconscious, has no right. idea it happened. There's no, you know, biological consequences either, right? You know, like full birth control and such, right? Then what is the kind of negative consequence of that? Yeah. Right? And so... You know, wasn't, like wasn't, he to- like, wasn't
0: he like comparing it to something? Like comparing it to uh, some kind of medical treatment or something? I can't even remember the exact, exact uh, I
1: don't remember, yeah. Oh, okay.
0: Like, but it wasn't like, you know, it was basically like just an innocent nerd coming up with thought experiments, and then he accidentally committed a blasphemy against feminism, right? That's basically the level of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, something that I've kind of stood for and why I like to have people on the show who are kind of like notably more based than I am, right, (laughs) even if I don't agree with them, is... That this kind of poking and prodding, I think actually selects for better people, right? It selects for more p- people who are more able to kind of think, uh, uh, more able to kind of think of the truth or like not think of, but like observe the truth around them, even when it's politically inconvenient. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I've sent you this actually, this, um, snippet of a conversation between Curtis Yarvin and Michael Anton. Where, where Curtis is, where like they had, they basically had a bunch of, this is also in my recommendations post, um, on Substack, but, um, for my audience here, but, uh, yeah, I'll just summarize it again. So, so Curtis and, and, uh, Michael essentially observed that a lot of people thought they hated each other, right? By the way, they interacted on a different podcast. And so, so, so Curtis goes on to explain that like there are kind of two, Stereotypes of conversation, right? Like stereotypically male and stereotypically female. Uh, I think he calls them like orthotypic and heterotypic. And he, he says the orthotypic one is basically, you know, like, uh, people pleasing. It's trying to form a coalition. It's trying to pretend you agree and not to, not to offend whoever else is in the conversation. And then the heterotypic conversation, uh, is the one where it's kind of like, you know, the stereotypical University of Chicago School of Economics Conversation, right? Where you're just ruthlessly grilling the person on stage. Maybe sometimes you're in t- intentionally disrespectful, right? Okay. All still focused around, you know, all still focused around whether the person's research is correct or not, right? right? But kind of intentionally disagreeable in that way, aesthetically disagreeable in that way, where the disagreeability... Even though, you know, like innately, right, in a world of kind of abstract computers, right, if you were doing this with an AI, maybe it would not necessarily select for AIs that were more competent. But when you're dealing with, you know, human psychology and human biases, that those those are highly correlated. So you can you you can use this kind of more disagreeable affect to kind of filter for people who in reality, right, are more likely to um to really actually care about finding the truth.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do agree with that. I think there's quite a lot to be said for that as long as it's kept within a suitable, uh, box, like sort of a podcast or, or an arena or like a, a stage or something like that. So that you're not just unpleasant to people all the time because then they, they actually think you hate them. But, um, yeah, I mean, with, within, within a sort of, uh, truth seeking arena, I think it's healthy. Um, and, and yes, I mean, I think, we are lacking a lot of that. And I think it's actually, the situation has got remarkably worse. Um, you know, like I'm sort of- On what worst...
1: time scale are we talking about? I right mean, I'm,
0: I'm talking about, say, 20, 20, 25 years, right? You know, all, like as long as I can remember, um, you know, things like the the idea that you would have Material consequences to your job or something, because of something you said, is actually, um, it's actually like a new concept for the modern West, right? I mean, I don't think the idea of cancellation was really around in, say, the 1990s. I certainly don't really recall it. Like, right, oh, right, or it was looked
1: upon, you... it was looked upon as stuff that our enemies did. Yes, right? exactly. You know, it was, it was like, hit, that's yeah.
0: the kind of thing that they do in, you know, like Cambodia, um, you know, during the reign of, uh, Pol Pot or maybe, you know, Maoist China or Russia in like the worst days of the purges. Um, it's not something we do in the West. We have freedom of speech and, you know, freedom of speech has very much been lost and it's been lost in such a, like, banal way, like, I mean, I know, you know, I know a guy who's significantly younger than me, he's, so I'm, I'm, like, 38, and this guy's in his early 20s, so he's a Zoomer, um, and he was, I think, involved in some online right-wing community, I think it may have been the Groypers, um, but I don't think he was, like, famous for it, I just think he was involved, and anyway, some people on the political left found out about this, dug some stuff up, sent like, you know, basically a single email to his employer, which was like some kind of, um, you know, basically corporate thing. And they just fired him. They, they didn't even like, you know, it wasn't like a kind of history of, you know, long string of this. It was just one email from some uh, activists and he was fired and just lost his job. And, and it like, it wasn't like a big thing. He couldn't go to a newspaper and say, oh my God, I've been fired from my job just for having an opinion because that's just so common now that it's just like, it's just accepted. And that's, that's a huge problem in my opinion, right? Like, you know, we, we have basically sleepwalked our way into a totalitarian, unfree culture. We don't have freedom of speech anymore. Not, I mean, you know, some people like myself, I mean, I have a reasonable degree of freedom of speech, but I work in cryptocurrency right? I don't, you can't look up my employer on LinkedIn, right? Right. There's right. nobody to go to, to fire me, right? So, you know, and there's no like, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like nobody could do anything to me, but I'm more of a hard target, right? Um, yeah,
1: like people like uh, Greg Lukianoff have made the case that there is... There, there's two things, right? There's, like, freedom of speech legally and freedom of speech culturally. Yeah. And the second thing matters even if you still have the first.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and in, in some, you know, in some countries like the UK, you don't even really have legal freedom of speech. Right. Right? Yeah. You can actually have the police go to your house over a tweet, and many people have had that.
1: Yeah, that's... It is, it is quite... Interesting because, I don't know, I think I wasn't paying attention to politics over this time, but I think people like Glenn Greenwald, people like uh, Matt Taibbi, uh, Edward Snowden, right? There was a time when it was like left coded to have basically not just not just, you know, um, legal freedom of speech, although that certainly applies in Snowden's case, Mm. but also kind of culturally um, culture, culturally, freedom of speech, yeah. right? And you still see the case with, I think, some uh, progressive today. I think like Rokana did an interview with Barry Weiss, where he at least kind of talks about supporting this, right, and talks about d- disagreeing with people being banned from Twitter. Um, and you know, there are various, there are kind of like the typical theories. You know, like the left was never truly about this, right? It was all, all always only for self interest. Mm. Um, And and so on and so forth But I'm kind of like pretty distrusting Or like I'm pretty skeptical of those theories Because you know I I think like the left was generally culturally dominant Or economically dominant Basically since FDR And you know like under FDR There was also pretty poor free speech norms During the war right during World War II But you know Throughout the ensuing decades Right I, I don't really think That there's you know like a particular degree Of left wing domination that, that makes it so that you know, the, they turn against freedom of speech, particularly now. Um, I don't know, what do you think, why do you think there's been a sort of cultural polarization of this idea?
0: Um, you mean, why why is it now the case that the right is in favor of free speech and the left isn't, when historically yeah. it was the other way around? I think it really probably just is pure self-interest. Um you know, I've said things that have pissed off the right and they, like, in, in particular recently about Down syndrome, Um, and I had a number of people come up to me and say, on Twitter at least, um, oh my God, I can't believe they're not banning you for this. And these are like, you know, people with MAGA and, you know, Trump 2024 in their profiles. So they want the ban hammer and they're jealous that they don't have it right um right. they 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 desperately want to ban people who are pro abortion um or any of the other key kind of uh maga right sort of issues right but they but they don't have that ability right because the other side controls the institutions that create that ban hammer so you know all of the big tech stuff is headquartered in california it's all staffed by lefties um so the right doesn't have access to the ban hammer. So the second best thing is to complain about it and try and say, well, look, the left is being um hypocritical. They, you know, they should be in favor of freedom of speech. But I think it's really just strategic. Um And, you know, nobody really wants freedom of speech for their enemies. Right. <laughs> um Because mm-hmm. speech can be used as a weapon, right? And especially speech that comes with reach, right? So, you know, there's a sort of continuum, really, of freedom of speech, where it's not just whether you're allowed to say something, but it's also how many people are allowed to listen to you, i.e. whether you're allowed to sort of advertise your speech and have it spread organically, and also how, you know, what level of consequences do you suffer, right? So, Um, both, so all political sides, in particular the left and the right in the US and in Britain and stuff like that, are trying to to win this game where they make it so that their opponents can't even argue against them, right? By making it so that opposing speech is banned or it's legally allowed but it'll get you fired or it's legally allowed but it's de-boosted which is what they've been doing on Twitter recently so that you know, the the thing is, like, humans are just remarkably easy to persuade, right? And not even just to persuade. I mean, a lot of humans um, actually don't care about either what's true or what's right. They just care about which way the wind is blowing, right? Um, You know, and like the, the set of people who basically don't have any real true values and don't have any, you don't really have any real epistemology, you don't really care what's true, you know, the set of people who are just completely up for grabs is big enough that if you can control that, you can impose your favoured way the world should work on not just the people who don't care, the people who who are just up for grabs, but also on your enemies, right? Because if your enemies are, let's say, the hardcore 10% of people, and you're, you know, 15%, but there's this big, you know, 75% in the middle, and you can grab all those people in the middle. Uh and, You know, some of them you can grab by literally bribing them with money. Some of them you can grab with lies. You can just sort of tell them lies, and they're just very... um you know, credulous, and they'll believe your lies, and then some of them won't believe the lies, but they'll just be like, well, this is the way the wind's blowing, so I'm just going to go with it. So once, you know, you've got all of those people, you can actually have just a sort of overwhelming majority, and you can use things like democratic institutions uh, to impose your will on your opponents. So what's really going on is that, you know, politics is just warfare by other means, right? It's an, it's, you know, fifth generation warfare, it's information warfare um and that's why the whole thing is so incredibly convoluted and touchy and messy because you know speech has become speech and censorship are now weapons of war essentially uh and it's sort of a, sort of like a civil like a like a cold civil war effectively um where the game is to see who can basically impose whose will on whom
1: right so I do want to dive deeper here yeah I wanted to just avoid some of the more kind of well trodden ground um, to me, I don't know I'm in a fairly unique position in terms of uh, both having a lot of economically productive skills having at least somewhat of a reach now uh, on social media as well or on this on this podcast on this very podcast mm-hmm. but, I do think, in general, this is this is I think a piece I had called "The Ones Who Build Will Have Names." I'll also put this in the show notes, where I argue that the counter-signaling effects, at least if you're like, at least if you're like somewhat competent, right? If you're kind of like you know, 100 IQ person, I'm not sure this is the case, but if, if you're like at some level of elite, the counter-signaling effects due to holding, maybe not, you know, super-based positions, but at least holding, well, like, in my experience, right, holding my positions, which are sort of, you know, um, realistically acknowledging certainly individual differences, to some degree group differences, um, certainly group sex differences, um, uh, cost-benefit analyses of covid um, not, you know, n- nothing that is, you know, like, extremely based, but I'm, I'm sure the people of this podcast know roughly, roughly my position on these things, right? Uh, the main point is that counter signaling, the positive effects, the positive selection effects you get for the people around you, in my experience, at least just so far outweighs the negatives, right? Like, yeah, if you're just a I, I, normal yeah, right. software engineer right, and you're dealing with, and, and you're going, you're interacting, and you have a friend group that's basically, like, people who buy into this dogma. It's just not interesting talking to them. <laughs> and, like, quite honestly, quite honestly, right, they're not giving you much at all, right? If you're talking to them, like, occasionally, they might say something interesting, right? But there, there's actually, like, a negative correlation, at least once you get into that elite level, right, there's so mu- much of a negative correlation between left-wing ideology and ability as well mm. right you can which you can see for various reasons yeah i mean you know, this, this is the, like, the sort of tim
0: be... timnit gerbru effect um <laughs> you yeah, know that, that of like, be,
1: that's a very funny yeah
0: yeah one, once you just select for the intersection of all these different identities you just basically guaranteed to have a grifter right
1: yeah yeah not just on like the not just on like the the kind of celebrity level though, just like random people, you know, or like random people you'd see at say like a university campus or at a software company, right? Yeah. Like the most interesting people are always, you know, basically people who are people who are like both competent. Like, I think, I think uh, Taleb makes this point, right? Where he talks about if, if you're going, if you're seeing a surgeon, Um, if that surgeon looks like a butcher, the odds are he's actually a better surgeon because he's stuck around for so long despite the appearance. Uh, It's it's that, but so many times more for... um, certainly for... um, for software and I think for most kind of competence skills at all. Uh, Also, in my experience... In my experience at, like, the top levels of kind of math and computer science competitions, like, you, you get, like... A politicals and you get libertarians. And I think there's one guy I know who's, like, very based from those right. circles. But, you, yeah, you, you actually get, like, there's sort of some amount of, like, you know, Joe Biden leftism, or, like, um, or, like, EA leftism, where it's just, like, default, you know, default voting for technocracy, and voting, mostly voting against, you know, like, the stupid stuff that you know like QAnon or those kind of people are getting yeah, on to yeah. right there's definitely like that kind of liberalism right kind of establishment normie liberalism but i don't think there's any kind of like any of like the a- absolutely insane stuff
0: yeah yeah i mean we- um good yeah, that that makes sense because i mean i think um it's sort of like you know if if you have this pervasive you must believe this, you must believe this, you must believe this kind of messaging. You know, the people who escape from that are going to have some degree of competence, right? And that competence yeah, yeah, is exactly, going
1: exactly.
0: to reflect in, um, you know, what they can do in other places where they're, you know, not being, not necessarily just following instructions. Because, I mean, like, you know, there, there is a certain amount of, um, just sort of dumbness about, um, the left wing cultural positions. And there's also a certain dumbness about some of the right wing ones, especially when they're taken, uh, to extremes. Um, yeah, that, that's
1: where I thought you were going to go. Like I had yeah. Richard Nania on this podcast. Yeah. You know, like he has this term, the scam right. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> the scam yeah. right.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen some of these types pop up around my Twitter. Um, <laughs> and it's like, you know, their response to the crises that we're having is that you're supposed to, like, um, you know, get a farm, uh, save up lots of ammo, um, you know, like, tend food, uh, bunker, and, like, wait for the big disaster, and then, you know, everyone else will be dead except you because you know how to farm and you have, like, friends and stuff. It's almost like, um... Have you seen that video recently of somebody who has like a, a pet beaver, and the beaver's walking around in the house, and it's Christmas time, and the beaver finds all the Christmas presents in the Christmas tree and like makes them into like a dam. Uh, this, right? <laughs> I've like,
1: never, I've never seen this, but it right, you hilarious. can you, you can imagine, I'm right? Great. You know, this beaver yeah, is just yeah. sort
0: of um, you're carrying out this instinctive behavior in this sort of uh, uh, maybe I'll call it uh, redneck right sort of response to this of like, get a farm, you know, save up ammo and food, um, you know, wait, wait for the big disaster and prep and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of like this beaver that's just, you know, well, it's like stuck in somebody's house at Christmas time, doesn't know how to respond to the situation, but it sure does know how to build a dam. So, you know, let's build a dam, right? Um, it, it's not, what they're doing is not, in my opinion, an appropriate response. It's there right, isn't gonna yeah, be, yeah. I don't know though. I, I am actually more worried
1: about the kind of opposite thing, where where they kind of claim a position, and then a lot of you know basically smart people will deflect off of a position yeah. because it's claimed by like people who they see as dumb, and yeah. those people might actually be dumb, right? Those people might actually believe mm. those things for a dumb reason, yeah. But you know, a broken clock is right twice, you know, yeah. is right twice a day, right? And especially in the current political situation, where I think a lot of you know, it, it's funny, a lot of left-wing people use reactionary as a sort of pejorative, but a lot of what they do, in my view, is reaction, right? It yeah. is reaction. Uh, I think, like, Eric Kaufman, who's been on the show, has this term, I think, like, um, left modernism, right, where he describes how, like, the left-wing's aesthetics are basically shaped by wanting to distance themselves from the aesthetics of ordinary people. Yeah. I kind of worry that in especially in a world where that that is so common that a lot of actually fairly reasonable positions, maybe not reasonable in terms of lines of reasoning, but, you know, reasonable positions in terms of just like factually, objectively are stigmatized. Yeah. I think I've definitely seen a lot of this with regards to actually my most recent, or no, now it's been two posts to go, but I made, you know, a point that there was never a rational case for lockdowns. And the, the the point here is that there was always a kind of asymmetric standard. People were always far more terrified of the unknown consequences of the virus than the unknown consequences of the interventions, when exactly the opposite is the case in reality. Right. right. And now you can say, you know, maybe we just got unlucky. But even if you were just taking the expected value, even if you were just taking the average, it should have been known, it should have been obvious ahead of time that the social consequences are almost you know, obviously as destructive, if not obviously more destructive yeah, right. than and the I, virus.
0: I would say I agree with that. And I mean, I did a quantitative analysis of this at some point in 2020, late 2020, I think. Um And it sort of became obvious to me that we're going to lose more person years to lockdowns than we're going to lose to the virus.
1: Yeah, for sure. For and sure.
0: specifically because the virus tends to kill older people who are going to die anyway, um, you know, like when the virus kills people, it doesn't get as many life years as you might expect, right? Kill somebody at 80 who would have died at 85, it only gets five life years. But if you, you know, if you sort of lock down 80 people for one year to try and prevent one 80-year-old dying at 80 instead of 85, you know, that seems reasonable, but it maybe actually isn't, right? Because you decreased those people's quality of life by a lot more... Um, total, you know, quality adjusted life years than you gained, uh, from that 80 year old. So I, I think at some point, at some point in 2020, it really did become uh, a losing battle. I think maybe initially, you know, we should have banned flights, like I said in January of 2020. I have quite a problem with post saying we need to, we need to ban the flights now. If we'd done that, we may have got some value just in terms of, um, uh, retarding the spread in the very early stages. Um, which would have given us more time to understand how dangerous the virus really was to develop vaccines in case we needed them uh, and and sort of scale up production and stuff. But I mean, by the time it got to late 2020, it was like, look, the the lockdowns are costing us more. um, Yeah. Commercial
1: flight restrictions. It's always kind of dubious because, you know, there's like commercial flight restrictions in theory and there's commercial flight restrictions in practice. Which often or almost always go up far too late. And then you already have commercial spread. That, that's the kind of yeah. empirical data with COVID, especially. Yeah. Right? i mean, If we, if we just grounded
0: know. all the airplanes in like mid January, just like all of them, I think yeah, that would yeah, be like, valuable. Uh,
1: yeah. Like if they were deployed by basically a government with state capacity, then yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, like, uh, flight, flight cancellations, commercial flight cancellations could have worked. Yeah, but I think that even then we knew, maybe not to this extent, but we kind of knew that that this was not going to be the case. That yeah. in fact the government is not all too functional. That it is, uh, you know, in in the technical definition of the term retarded. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I mean, in, in January yeah. 2020, you had the government welcoming in plane loads of passengers from Wuhan. Uh, as a way to evacuate. Yeah, yeah, that was a right? particularly atrocious counter signal. It was just incredibly stupid, right? Um, yeah, you know, and, and look where it's got us. And so now we have the whole debate about vaccines, where I'm actually not even sure at this stage whether vaccines for young people are net positive or net negative. The whole like I can't I can't find the answer. I don't know if you have an opinion on that one.
1: Oh yeah, under under twenties. 20s... Yeah, under twenties I think Philippe Lemuen had the point that, you know, for under twenties, both sides of the equation matter so little. That like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm very skeptical. I I'm like almost all of the evidence that I've reviewed when it comes to vaccine injury, I'm very skeptical of. Almost all of those cases seem to be either like blatantly ignoring correlates, blatantly ignoring the base rate, or um, Quite frankly, just like, just like, not, just like citing the wrong numbers, right? They'll, they'll attribute like a claim to a study, and that study will just not have that claim. Right. Right. And you know, like, maybe there are some better versions of this, but of the versions that I've found, I'm extremely skeptical of vaccine injury. With regards to like the lack of efficacy, particularly on younger people, um, yeah, it is, it is the case that it basically like, I know like there are some people who, who have made a more convincing case with regards to lack of efficacy for young people. Uh, And, you know, like maybe, maybe that matters or like maybe that matters in terms of like the kind of epistemic debate of, you know, who was right. But to me, you know, I'm just making this judgment. I'm like, look at both sides of the equation. To me, I just don't care. Right. Because both sides of the equation, both vaccine injury, in my view, And also, uh, the rates and the risk rates of the virus are just so low that like, you know, probably if if you're like, if you're like an 18 year old, you probably like, you like spending a lot of time thinking about this is probably worse than going either way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and the, the other thing is like with, with COVID, what a lot of people missed is just the huge extent to which age, um, matters. Right. Like yeah. the, the you know the the amount of difference between an eighteen year old and an eighty year old in terms of COVID risk is like I don't know three orders of magnitude or something. Um,
1: right. I thought it was. I thought it was. Sorry. Well, it was thirty year old and eighty year old. Um. I, I remember a stat. I, I remember a stat that the difference between I think like seven seventy and older and like uh and like zero to ten was I think five or six. Right. So, so, yeah, yeah, like the age stratification is insane, yeah, um or or well is is very you know is, is very drastic, I think it's pretty yeah they're, they're reasonable they're they're sane uh arguments to get to like why why a virus would evolve uh to the state, right, uh or not evolve to the state um but yeah i I do think i I agree with you, like the kind of the kind of systematic forgetting of sort of basic priors or, or kind of assumptions that people made into essentially faulty models, right? Philippe Lemoine has this point about uniform transition uh, or transmission, sorry, uh, about, you know, models predicting that every person has, has the same rate of spread to every other person, right. which um, is quite frankly absurd, right? Uh, so you had all of these very clear, very obvious methodological errors that were kind of laundered through an air of authority Mm. right and it was this air of authority that made it so that many people did not make the basic cost-benefit analyses or made just fundamentally flawed judgments and right and the biggest thing is that they don't seem to be updating their priors on this right like there's like a very there's like a very common meme of like Bayes theorem right you know about this for sure Right. In, in, the rationality thing where every time they like change their mind, they post like a picture of Bayes' theorem and they have like Scott, a- Scott Alexander has this on the b- bottom of every blog post, I think. Right. But they really don't seem to have updated their priors in terms of trusting legacy institutions. And it, it really is funny. Right. It really is funny when the, where the exception is.
0: Uh, the, what do you mean by the exception?
1: okay yeah I want because um so so like the exception basically is the the obsession the obs oh my goodness, okay, sorry the exception fundamentally right is these like oligarchic institutions is these legacy institutions that not only, you know, not only made false claims, but made basically judgment calls that no even like 100 IQ person would make, right? Like this is the point I make in my article, right? 100, 100 IQ person maybe is not very good at exactly weighing how bad coronavirus will be versus how bad lockdowns will be. But if you're just dumb and making errors in a random direction, you would say maybe you would be paranoid of both the virus and, and the lockdowns, right? That, that's kind of like, you know, like the old Chinese grandpa, right? Who's both an anti-vaxxer and also hate, and also terrified of the virus, but also hates the government for locking them down. Right. right? Like a, a wonderful, you know, just a wonderful demonstration of public opinion there. Right. Um, but, uh, and here I mean Chinese isn't actually in China. Right. right? But, um, yeah, this kind of like uncorrelated error is what you would expect from a random person, right? Even like a random stupid person. And that's not the kind of error. That kind of error would have been much less destructive when it comes to managing lockdowns and managing COVID, right? What, what you saw was like a heavily correlated error that was more destructive than the choices of a stupid person. And that ultimately, right, that ultimately, you know, should discredit the institution as not only being stupid, but possibly being worse than that. But that kind of discrediting just did not happen. And and it's just kind of like... The willingness to further entrench the best example of this is like sbf's pandemic preparedness donation, right? Just like, just like entrusting the government of California of all people to do <laughs> pandemic preparation and and maybe you you can think like, okay, this was just an excuse for SBF to go and bribe some people. You know like okay, yeah, okay, understandable. But in terms of like the the people who there, are, I think like certainly people who who I kind of personally trust, who are who is kind of supportive of this, and it's like no, this is like almost the best example of like works on paper does not work in practice it, of like this strategy that's fundamentally based on things that you should well know are discredited by now, but that just does not happen in the rationalist community, and that is by far the number one thing I'm most frustrated. Right, you, uh, by, in you, terms you of mean, them, it's not even the like tolerance of woke stuff. It's right. definitely the kind of like um, refusal to update their priors on legacy institutions.
0: Right. Okay. So they're basically prominent rationalists. erroneously believe that you know the people wearing the uniforms and the government badges know what they're talking about, uh, when you know actually it's sort of corrupt um, and incompetent, and these institutions are decayed. Um yeah I'm more on the incompetent trusted.
1: than corrupt side, but yeah. yeah
0: and and you you would say that the the biggest issue there was that they just carried on with lockdowns for way too long,
1: right carried on for lockdowns. I think that they should have approved vaccines much earlier, or quite frankly at this point, right, given their kind of observed level of incompetence, not even not even had any kind of legal power to enforce. Um, vaccine bans at all. Yeah. Right? This is something that people don't understand is that like the vaccines were banned. That's what actually happened. They were banned for more than a year, right? A yeah, year and right. a half. Yeah, right. I mean, a, those,
0: so, some of these right? vaccines were ready in early 2020. Um,
1: yeah. And they actually banned all sorts of things related to the pandemic, including, uh, uh, including masks. COVID tests, right? I don't think yeah. they went as far as like legally well, banning them in actually, the same way as,
0: I mean, they, they right? had some situations where, medical staff were fired from their jobs for wearing face protection
1: that yeah like that that seems quite but yeah yeah all of this kind of summed up together i think is just you know really a kind of once again this is like a lot of people have the argument of like compared to what Right. And I'm making the point that like, even compared to like normal error, right? Even yeah. compared to like what I call uncorrelated error, you know, like the kind of stuff that the kind of honest mistakes that like a 100 IQ person makes. Right. 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 This is still far, far worse than that. Right. Yeah. You, you put like, you know, you put like Joe Rogan in charge of handling, you know, <laughs> it, of handling um, the FDA, he would have done some stupid things, but banning COVID tests was not one of them. Yeah, Even right. though he's kind of, like, bought into some of the vaccine skepticism stuff. I don't think he would have even banned vaccines. Where he would have said, you know, like, we're not going to mandate them, but, you know, like, yeah, if you want right. to take the vaccine, take I mean, yeah, the vaccine.
0: Right. I mean, I, I think actually just the sort of libertarian approach would have worked very well here, where you said, yeah, look, exactly, exactly. this is a vaccine made by a reputable company. There's no need for the government to get in between the vaccine givers and the vaccine takers, right? You just have to record, you have to have some sort of, uh, you know, legal um, uh, sort of, you know, paperwork that people consent to it. But if they consent to it and you're a reputable pharmaceutical company and you record what happens and the regulator's watching you, then we shouldn't stop that from happening. And I think um, if we, you know, if we had got the vaccines out earlier in 2020, um, at least with a, a, even with just a small group of people tried it. Cause people were talking about this. People were like, look, we should have a vaccine heroes group where people get paid a lot of money to take a vaccine and then see, see what happens to them. Um,
1: right. Right. This was like a challenge trial. Yeah. None, right? none of yeah. that
0: actually happened. Um, even though there's, you know, it's just sort of, I mean, I would have even gone further and said, not only should we have, we should have banned flights. We should have had vaccine challenge trials we should have had just Corona exposure trials just to see how bad it was. And just like on a, on a ship somewhere moored off the Chinese coast or, or, or something like that. Um, just to, just to monitor this because the value of that information at that stage was incredibly large, right? The value of the information about how bad the virus was, how dangerous the vaccines were, how good the vaccines were. And we actually got, We actually got it wrong. We thought the vaccines were neutralizing, but they weren't. We thought the vaccines would stop spread and they didn't. Um
1: I actually think I actually think they did for some period of time on the earlier variants. But but that to me seems to still those results seem to hold up to me. But yeah, you you're you're right in that it definitely did not for later later variants. Right.
0: So so there's all sorts of information that we could have had very cheaply in early 2020, right, by, you know, January, well, not January, but, you know, February, March, April, we could have been gathering that information. Like, you know, if if I was to respond to this, and I was like, dictator of the world, like, you know, January 15th or something, bang, all flights everywhere around the world would be grounded, you know, you would have ships off the Chinese coast with people getting deliberately infected who were paid, you know, huge salaries just to go through it. You would have had other ships where they had them vaccinated. Like, you know, you really would have just systematically found out how bad the, the virus was, how well the cures work, and done everything you could to prevent it from going global um, in those early days. And I, and thank God it wasn't that bad of a virus. Because imagine if it had had, you know, a much higher fatality rate or much higher rate of long-term injuries, and we just kind of, like, let it go, like, sort of let it rip, you know, uh, around the whole world, and then find out that it kills, you know, 25% of people or something. Um, Thank God it wasn't that. But the thing is, we probably will eventually get that, and that worries me in terms of the the long-term picture for pandemics.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some people kind of see me as, like, a... Or, like, it's very interesting. Some people only have exposure to, like, the E.A. side of my writing, and some people only have the exposure to kind of, like, the libertarian side of my writing. Right. It's pretty interesting. It's it's pretty interesting, the kind of stuff that... Or the kind of, like, low-resolution versions of beliefs that people have about me. But, like, here's the thing, right? Here's the... And I'm, I'm mostly speaking to the audience here, Right a functioning, you know, a functioning federal bureaucracy is not solely a kind of libertarian issue, right? A function, like, a federal bureaucracy that basically punishes incompetence and rewards competence should be, you know, a universal issue. Yeah. It should be, you know, like, the most basic thing. Uh, but yeah, with regards to stuff like challenge trials, it really is just a kind of, like, emotionality a kind of, quite honestly, like stupidity, right? When it comes to these things, inability to make cost benefit analysis. Yeah. And like the, the thing that I think I want to insist is that like these things are correlated errors, right? Like the bureaucracies being neurotic, being afraid of making judgments and at the same time being hyper willing to impose diktats on its population, right? In a way that deflects accountability away from itself. Right, that is not just a libertarian problem. That is, you know, that is basically a guarantee, right? That you're not even choosing, you know, random people off the street who are unqualified for the position, but you're in fact choosing the people who are most likely to do
0: damage so like given an, that position. Anti, anti-qualified people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's the. Sec-
1: this is actually what I'm. What I was working on as a possible book is like. There are three types of organizations. This was the thesis, right? There are three types of organizations. Organizations that are chosen to deliver, that are selected to deliver on their promises. Organizations that are just kind of incompetent, who are like basically uncorrelated. And organizations where the people are selected precisely because they do not deliver on their promises. Right. And to me, like the FDA, CDC, are certainly organizations where the latter is true. Where exactly the goal that is... Uh where exactly the goal that they're rewarded for is not just, you know, not actually providing a solution themselves because actually many of them are incompetent to correctly discern between which solutions work and which don't, but actively banning other people from implementing preferable alternatives. Yeah. Because when you do that, you can't get out competed.
0: Right, yeah. And and that kind of um I feel like we we spoke about something like that earlier with um or before the podcast um, with this idea of ideologies that get selected um, by being very aggressive and censorious, sort of like, I believe this was your idea of uh, uh, a society made of, you know, human Lego bricks will tend to select very perversely, right? It'll, you know, you get people who are aggressive who want to impose themselves on others who are maybe there's something defective or wrong with them. So they have to have power in order to protect themselves. Um, And that perhaps some of the problems with the woke movement are this um, sort of perverse or adverse selection uh, to power.
1: Yeah. the, The kind of like deformed. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about this in the, in the context of paleoconservatism, right? This is my favorite idea from them is that you kind of can't have normal... Or you can't have, like, neutral... Standards of beauty because normal people have standards of beauty, and if you try to invert them, you actually have to go tyrannical in order to actually invert them. Yeah. Right. Which, which, Um, so not originally my idea. I think a lot of, actually, a lot of like very old thinkers have made this point as well. I don't remember off the top of my head, but certainly not an idea original to me.
0: Yeah. So this is, this also ties into Spandrel's formulation of this, which is bio Leninism. The idea that, Old school communism in Russia needed to, and China as well, needed a way to ensure loyalty. Um, so they only picked people who would just, you know, who would, who, who had something wrong with them that they would do badly in normal society. Um, and you know, in the old days, that was like, well, we'll only choose members of the revolution who are from like the lower social classes. Uh, because basically, you know, they don't have an aristocratic title or a good family name, um, or maybe we'll choose ethnic minorities or something like that. So some, some people who fit in some kind of intersection of, of these kind of um, classes that other people don't trust or don't like. And those people will be very loyal because they know that if the revolution fails, that they're not going to personally be able to fit in. And so Spoundrel's right. idea is that this idea of political Leninism has been replaced with biological Leninism, and that that's where the whole intersectionality thing comes from. You know, we're ruled by people from races that other people don't like, from sexual orientations that people find gross, uh, by people who are ugly, um, by people who have some kind of deviance about them, because all these people are loyal to the revolution, um, if the revolution ever am unwound, they would have no allies, nobody would like them. So they're sort of super loyal and they can all trust each other. And then the people who are sort of normal, well-adjusted and productive, you know, they're all busy stabbing each other in the back, uh, trying to get eaten by the monster last, because, you know, they can't be loyal to each other, because if the revolution did fail, um, they would all just do okay anyway. Um, so there's sort of no particular reason for them to stick together, right? This is bi- biological Leninism. Right,
1: so so a big debate on the kind of political theory, right, that I've been weighing in recently on is like whether this is sort of emergent or kind of accidental, I think or you know, emergent. like evolutionary. I, I think it's emergent. I hundred percent, right. think yeah. this is emergent. Or yeah, there are some people who think it's sort of like a top-down thing. Look, it's right. Not, people are planning this ahead of time. It's not, yeah, I, I also don't it's think it's emergent. That. I actually wrote, yeah, I wrote this piece this is the first, you know, viral piece that I ever had, right? The rule of midwits making this point that, you know, there's this natural feedback loop between basically like midwit discourse norms and like actual, you know, like middling ability that a lot of midwit discourse norms actively kind of pollute the spaces that they're in and make it so that people who are kind of maybe a few standard deviations above that uh or maybe even just one right go off to better pastures this is um yeah. this is most predominant in the cli- in the kind of like decline of companies right like the oh. the, the decline of IBM and so on and so oh, forth that kind of bureaucratization yeah, Steve Jobs right. has this like infamous quote or like famous quote of, you know, they're A players and B players. And if you let an, one single B player on, on a team of A players, it'll quickly become an entire team of B players.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, yes, I wonder whether we can generalize that a little bit.
1: <laughs> Go on. I think we both have similar analyses here, but uh, for the audience, and actually for me, I'm also interested, even if we believe the same thing, I'm interested in uh, how you come to it. Uh, why do you think it's emergent? What's your, what's your case for that?
0: because i think the people who are doing it are not smart enough to come up with it basically <laughs> yeah 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 it's, right it's, it's just it's way. just too like it's just so fucking clever and they're just so fucking dumb they couldn't have invented this they just sort of naturally you know did their thing and their thing happened to be optimal by accident um yeah. you know and there's like other i mean maybe th- there's maybe one example of this that might be deliberate, but I'm not sure, and that's feminism, right? So a specific, specifically first-wave feminism. So I've been very interested in feminism for a while, uh, and specifically like the epistemological sort of battles between feminism and red pill, uh, because they, it's actually a pretty important issue and affects a lot of people's lives and the way you choose to live and stuff like that, because most people are straight, so they have to relate to the other gender. And you know feminism's pretty clearly um extremely negative utility it's like a it's like a terrible idea right and and yet and it's even it's so terrible that um a lot most women are against it when you ask them in private right or they're they're for it but they'll sort of um you know, they'll sort of like caveat it so much that they're like in favor of feminism in name only, i.e. they want men who are brave and strong and chivalrous and powerful. And, you know, they they just, everything that feminists say women should want, like they want a man who's equal. No, no, I don't want a man who's equal. I want a man who's better. Or oh, do you want a man who
1: does- Right, the right, Real preferences. Yeah. Oh no, I, I, wouldn't, I
0: wouldn't want a man who does the chores. I wouldn't respect him. I want a man who's like out earning a lot of money um you know so that i'm like attracted to him and, and like you know so, so it's like such a bad idea how did this incredibly bad idea that ruins everyone's life get so much power right
1: so sure, let, let's let's fix the definitions first because i think maybe that means different things to different people Right. like i'm not i'm not completely sure you know there's some people there's some twitter mutuals who i follow who would go as far as you know uh the number of women in the workplace should be, like, significantly reduced. Right. Right. I, I'm not sure how how far you mean by this.
0: Okay, yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously a continuum here. Um, yeah. Let's... Like, let, let's say that feminism is the idea, broadly speaking, that men and women are the same on the inside. Like, they have the same brain, they have the same preferences... Um, they have the same everything, but they're just wearing a different skin suit, right? So you're kind of born as a human. And then just before you sort of exit the birth canal, you get like either a man's skin suit or a woman's skin suit. If you get the man one, you get a penis. If you get the woman one, you get a vagina and breasts, but everything else is the same. Right. And based on this sort of essential similarity between men and women, we should demand uh, exactly equal pay. We should demand equal representation everywhere. So exactly the same fraction should be engineers versus nurses versus primary school teachers versus soldiers. Um, You know, we should have um, this kind of this kind of like weird legal thing where women are both equal to men, but also better than them. Um, they're both more powerful, but also more vulnerable. Like this whole sort of weird and wonderful collection of ideas, right? I mean, I don't want to. Yeah,
1: have... the HR laws have got to go. Yeah. Right.
0: I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, like men are supposed to be, be real men and take the initiative, but they're also not supposed to take the initiative because that's rape. Um, and, and all sorts of things, right? So, so where did this garbage pile come from, right? Um, and it really got me thinking, you know, I, I don't think for a very long time, I mean, I, I've always known that this stuff is nonsense and that the red pill stuff is basically right. Um But I've never really understood until recently um why it ever became popular. Right. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, in, in South Korea, they have um, this belief called fan death. Have you heard of that? Uh, I, I don't know what that you is. You haven't heard of fan death. So there is a persistent urban myth in Korea that if you go to sleep with a fan on in the room, it will kill you. Um, and there are varying explanations for this. Like um, some people say it's because it blows cold air on you and gives you an infection. Others say it rips the molecules to pieces and you can't breathe. It's just ludicrous, right? Yeah. To so me, it's
1: not even like a spirit or like a spiritual thing. It's like it's like literal
0: yeah no literally a oh kill like you right. yeah you can look up fan death and to me, you know feminism, the idea that men and women are fundamentally just sort of like the same person but with a different skin suit on is as ridiculous as fan death. so how did this how did this stupid idea get so powerful um and I think I think some well, it's partly me but it's also this guy called mirror dissident. On Twitter came up with the explanation for it, right? So here's 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 the explanation. Any kind of really bad, obviously wrong idea has to have a group that sponsors it and sort of um enforces it, right? So if that idea is that communism is a good way to run the economy, you need, you know, the Stasi to like arrest anybody who says differently, right? Um every bad idea needs a physical group of people who are sponsoring that bad idea and who benefit from it. So the question is, who is that group for feminism? Uh. Any ideas?
1: Oh, I I thought that was a rhetorical question.
0: Right, but Um... who do you you think that... Who is that group? Who is the Stasi of feminism? Who is the group who supports this nonsense because some somebody's pushing this right it should be uh should be single curious women right okay but what kind of single as in they're bi-curious or something they, they want to have sex with a woman
1: not necessarily right this, this is the kind of richard richard hanania stuff right um <laughs> If I were to give an answer, I'm actually like not too well read on this. But if I were to give an answer, that would be it, right? That a lot of basically young professional women are kind of rising up in the workplace, and they want to get an advantage for themselves, and what's one way to do that?
0: So they want to get an advantage, as in they want they want to get promoted, but get promoted, right? Uh, And so they use feminism to get promoted. Yeah, but why do they want to get promoted? Why don't they just want to find a husband?
1: Why do they become... Because it's something that's... I mean, like, to some degree, I think that there is some kind of preference
0: to have material resources. Right, but do most... I mean, if you take an average woman, right, does she covet, you know, a powerful, attractive husband less than or more than just being like a girl boss and being really rich herself? I mean, how many women really fantasize about like Scrooge McDuck levels of wealth. I mean it's like basically mm-hmm. nothing, I don't right?
1: think it's like that, right? I think it's like this isn't, you know, founding a company, right? This is just like, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. Okay. I do think I do think actually like a lot of women my age, like definitely like the majority of them are are like fundamentally careerist, right? And mm-hmm. this is not necessarily negative or positive, right? It's just, you know, like what what their preferences actually are, right? They want a career for themselves. They want to make at least, you know, more money than they currently do. Mm -hmm. Maybe not, you know, like founder level money, right? But certainly more money, right? I think that that's actually a pretty common preference, at least among my generation. But then
0: what do they want to do with that money? I mean, do they just want to, you know, just like build a swimming pool and fill it with uh, gold coins or... Do they want to like okay, sell it? I'll, I'll, I'll be honest or...
1: here, you know, I don't think most people my age think that far ahead. Right. You know, like if I were to guess, it would be, you know, probably like buy a house. Yep. You know, you know, basic kind of like you know, the same thing that the same thing that men want, okay.
0: right? So it's sort of like security levels of, of wealth. Not, right. Not yeah. you rock star levels of wealth. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, that that, that makes sense. Um but, I mean, if you think about it for a second, right, like, you know, we live in the in the West, in America, certainly, I mean, there's enough resources for all of the women to have a house uh without them going to work. I mean, they don't, you know, the, like, there's enough economic surplus, uh, certainly, for, like, they could work relatively small hours, like, I don't know, 10 hours a week or something, and society as a whole could, like, build houses for them. Like, houses are, like, artificially expensive because everyone's competing to buy a fixed supply of houses and they just bid the prices up. So, I mean, maybe it's like individually rational to be a careerist woman and end up with like frozen eggs at 40 and like pet cats and stuff, but you know, collectively it's irrational, right? Um, it's not like and you would think that a political movement of women would appear and they instead of calling for equality at the workplace, they would actually be calling for inequality and saying no, women should not work. Women should, like, just be paid to be beautiful and fertile uh, or maybe just do, like, small work, like, you know, 12 hours a week and every woman gets a house and, yeah, okay, maybe we sort of, like, have it, you know, on, a, like, a sliding scale where if you're more intelligent and a bit more hardworking, you get a better one. But, like, it's certainly not, as a group, rational for women to be basically in this sort of, like, um you know, all trying to outbid each other by spending more and more of their very limited fertile years in an office instead of raising a family, when, or even not even necessarily raising a family, just having a good time, right? Um, part of which am not
1: raising- sure. I'm not sure. I believe the premise here, right? So, so is the premise that if we were just all yimbis, that we would have enough houses for people. Like, like that seems that seems not true. You know, like, like. Uh, even if even if we were like significantly more Yimby, I'm not sure how, especially house prices in like areas where most people want to live, <laughs> right? May, maybe if we're talking about you know like civilization level resettlement, then maybe then that's probably true. But in terms of like holding constant the places where people want to live, and even let's say we have you know like you know like significantly more Yimby policies, I'm not right. sure that's the case that you can build houses for every woman.
0: Like, that's, like, what, like,
1: 160 million people?
0: I mean, you you probably wouldn't need to increase the housing stock that much. I mean, if you increased it by, say, 50%, the prices would, would plummet, right?
1: Wait, increasing the wait, increasing the housing stock by only 50%? Like, I, I don't think, you know, like, you, you get so much deterioration just in terms of, like, in terms of, like, proximity to whatever your city center is, like, this is one thing that I'm always... I'm always a bit skeptical of the Yumbi people. This right. is maybe getting into a different discussion, right? But I'm actually pretty, pretty skeptical of, like, at least the degree, the severity of, of improvement that the Yumbi people are suggesting. I think that these things are, like, much more complex equilibria in terms of, you know, basically, right? Basically, in many areas... Of, of the world, I think that housing prices are actually very undervalued. I think that a lot of it is actually like equilibria in terms of people being afraid to to raise housing prices because mm-hmm. it will cause more of a political crackdown. Right. I, so I actually don't think, you know, the equilibria is strictly going in one direction there. Um, but okay, this, this is a bit of a tangent. Maybe we well, can let's, put a pin okay, on let's, this. Maybe we can talk about let's this.
0: Let's accept topic. this crazy premise that you know, since GDP per capita has gone up exponentially for a hundred years, it's reasonable for if women really wanted to and they all got together, they could basically make it so that women only had to work twelve hours a week and had basically the same standard of living as they do now.
1: The the other thought experiment is like, why don't just like fifty percent of people do that anyway, right? Like, why does it have to be women, right? Like, why right. like th- this is just basically you know like a massive, massive strike organization, right? Why don't we have massive... We don't even have, you know, like industry-wide strikes much anymore, right? Only very specific, very centralized industries. Usually at most you get a strike by company, right? So in terms of like the weakness of organized labor, I, I... I also think that those are pretty, you know, systematic factors with regards to um, willingness to defect in terms of scale of organizations, in terms of how geographically distributed they are, right? Like, I don't think these are actually too complicated answers. This, these are kind of, you know, like pretty reasonable economic, uh, economic circumstances or like economic
0: observations. Well, I mean, so so they they have a political movement, right? Feminism is a political movement for women. Yeah,
1: or like, it's... sorry, sorry, I should say like. I don't, I'm not sure if I, if I should have interrupted you. Just make like right, the but, entire place, like, so, and then we'll come. Yeah. Back
0: to so, so yeah. you know, you have a political movement for women. The obvious thing that women want is to enjoy their lives, to start a family when, whilst they still have, you know, that very limited fertile window that basically is like, you know, eighteen to thirty-five, um, and they could well maybe you're right and there's like you know economic reasons why they couldn't get it but they that's like if if you kind of try and make a political movement for women from first principles it should basically be campaigning for um less work campaigning for for women to be paid less in the workplace actually not more right because if that if they're paid less you know they're going to bid up housing less Right. The men are going to go and do the work because they're going to be paid more and the women can just pick off the the high earning men and then just sort of free ride off them and have all the things they want. So it, it is a, I mean, it is a bit weird given that women have this sort of um, they have this sort of sexual capital where they're valuable because there's always more demand for women in the sexual marketplace than for men. So they can sort of use that to some extent. There's also cultural capital that people are supposed to care for women more. And they're supposed to cater for what women want more than, than they do for what men want. So it's a bit weird that women as a group have all of these advantages. And then what they use them for is stuff that looks really stupid, right? It's like not getting women what they want. Women don't want, the, you know, do not inherently want to be spending the time from age 18 to age 35 in a cubicle in front of a spreadsheet, right?
1: Right. There are many, yeah, that that last right. observation, why is it, you know, gains in the workplace instead of gains outside of the right. workplace?
0: Yeah. Um, so, and, and a, and a core cool part of that is, you know, a woman could say, look, you know, why doesn't the man go do the spreadsheet duty? And I'll just chill out at home. Um, I'll raise a family eventually at some point between 18 and 35. Uh, the men can just go and do all the work. Um, it would make sense for a political movement for women to campaign for that because it would it would make life better for them, right? It would be using their political and cultural capital to achieve their goals. But then when you look at what feminism actually does, right? what it campaigns for is like, no, 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 we want more women in science. We want women to work more. We want women to uh, be in the workplace more. We want pay to be equal. Uh, we want people to get divorced more because we want to make divorce easier. We want to make it, harder to form, you know, marriages. We want to make that more difficult. Um, it's, it's a little bit weird and okay, let me, let me posit an explanation for this weird behavior. Okay. So instead of thinking of women as one group, now let's think of them as two groups. Okay. So, um, group number one are attractive, but dumb and group number two are sort of ugly, but smart, right? So if you had a situation where the way the world worked was basically that women would compete by being beautiful to catch the powerful rich men. And once a woman has caught one of these, she just basically chills out at home while he goes and works. And, you know, she has his children and, you know, she's basically like an upper middle class uh stay at home mom when she's a bit older. And then when she's a bit younger, they just like go on holiday together and have a good time. Um, that model would be good for women who are sort of attractive but dumb, right? Or maybe not dumb, just like not particularly intelligent or not particularly intelligent plus conscientious, right? Um, But it would be bad for the women who are sort of ugly and have a lot to contribute intellectually, right? Or who are lesbians, right? Because, you know that category of women either can't or doesn't want to basically freeload off a man, like, you know, catch the, catch the good man and like, marry him up. Um, They want to compete in the workplace, right? So there's this sort of, there are these two branches that women's politics could have gone along. And the branch that I was describing, which kind of like maybe you didn't even believe in very much was this one where women basically, just campaign to do less work for the men to do more work and women to basically sort of gra- you know grab a man like like a woman's career is basically marrying well right um, that version of the future would benefit women who are who want to have kids who are attractive and who have less to contribute in the workplace. The version that we're in is one that's really bad for women like that because women like that You know, we've like broken marriage. We've made it so that, you know, houses are expensive because all of the families that do form are two income families. So it bids up the price of houses. So if you're a beautiful woman and you snag a good husband, um, you still don't have enough money to afford a house because there are these other couples where they're both working. And so they have like double the money to spend that you have. Right.
1: Right. Right. This is like the right. Elizabeth
0: Warren book. Right. Two right? Income trap. Right. So, So the idea is that basically there were two paths that women's politics could have gone along. Right. One path would be good for sort of cute but dumb women. And the path that we went along is good for ugly but smart slash conscientious slash lesbian women. And it turns out that if you think of a feminist... What do you think of? Well, smelly armpit hair, maybe she's a lesbian, uh, definitely ugly, you know, etc., cetera, et cetera, right? The, the women who support feminism are the ones who would lose out because they would be, they would be single, right? Under the, if you had a system where a way that, the way that a woman made it in a world was basically by marrying the right husband and then having his family, um, these ones who are either lesbians or ugly or whatever like they just wouldn't be able to get a man, right? And then in that world, they would be very low status, right? They wouldn't be allowed into the workplace because you'd have this norm that the workplace and earning money was mainly for men. So it would suck for them, right? So they made the feminist movement and the other group of women, the kind of, shall we say, the more womanly women, um, they never managed to coordinate to make a rival institution that was anywhere near the institutional power of feminism now to some extent you see these types like the uh the trad wife types you know who who have like instagrams about baking and um you know beauty and and stuff like that but they they don't have political power the way the feminists do so to to cut a very long story short what mirror dissident and i think is that feminism is basically a Sort of rebellion of beta women um, hijacking society to make it more sort of nice for them, and, and that's actually a bad thing because these you know these women tend to prefer not to have a family or to have a smaller family. Um, so they've basically sort of ruined human reproduction because in a world where human reproduction worked properly, they would be low status. So feminism is actually bio Leninism as applied to these, this sort of variation in females as mate quality versus as um, sort of workers.
1: Right. I think this is... Yeah, I, I haven't heard the kind of attractiveness aspect, but there are definitely a lot of people who who think that, yeah, who, who think that feminism is basically, you know, like a culturally elite movement that has betrayed the interests of most women. Yeah. Right? Like, this is basically... I think this is basically like Nina Power's book. Is it Nina Power's book? It's like someone... Oh, it's basically Louise Perry's book. I'm very sorry, you guys. Um, but yeah, it's basically Louise Perry's book. And uh, and uh, Nina Power also has talked about similar things in Compact. Um, of this basically being, yeah, kind of like status elite. I'm not sure if they talked about uh, attractiveness. Um, but yeah, definitely a kind of like high or at least mid-high IQ. Um and yeah, a kind of like, a kind of like, uh, striving, right. A kind of desire for status and ambition yeah. and, uh, and basically climbing the corporate hierarchy. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think their case is somewhat, I think it's definitely true that it has feminism as a movement has benefited the kind of, yeah, the, the kind of like professional elite women and has been mostly negative, for, for non,
0: non-elite women. Uh, well, I'm, not, even, sure even for, I'm still not sure. Sorry, go on. Even for elite women who want to have a family, feminism is still bad, right? Because it just makes them choosing to have a family and like have, say, six children, right? It makes that, it financially punishes that heavily. If you're an elite woman with an IQ of 145 and you want to have six children, Feminism makes that really hard, right? Because feminism has pushed all the house prices up because everyone else has two working parents who are then having fewer children, like or none, right? And pushing house prices right. up, pushing you out of good schools, making everything you want to buy more expensive, um, and and you the, the the elite woman are sort of society's trying to push you into working at a spreadsheet rather than popping babies out and baking and stuff like that, right? So even if you're cognitively elite, it's still bad for you,
1: right? Right. Yeah, I think definitely... I don't know. When it comes to the kind of housing economic stuff, I am pretty sceptical, or at least I'm somewhat sceptical, of the Warren case, because I think that, you know economic productivity is a real thing. I think tech stagnation has more to do with, with it than sort of labor concentration. Although, yeah, it's definitely, I don't know, it's been a while since I've read that book. I mean, book, look, so maybe if, I should you, do if you a had a world
0: of in which women weren't allowed to earn money, ultimate anti-feminist, right? You know, women's paycheck yeah. is zero by diktat, right? House prices would be lower, probably, right? Because people wouldn't have as much money to bid them up, right? A lot of the labor, you know, that that labor that goes into, like, you know, spreadsheets or whatever wouldn't be there. It would be making babies, baking, whatever it is. Now, we might have a lower GDP, but then a higher fertility, right?
1: Right. but But the point is that, you know, like... I mean, I'm more of a... There are increasing theories, right, of, like, how much of the economy is fake. I actually think that a lot of the economy is real. It's people doing actual things. You know, some of those things might be, you know, like being a middle manager at Starbucks, but still doing, you know, something. Right. I, I, I'm pretty suspicious that you would not have serious economic effects from removing women from the workforce, I mean um, obviously
0: if you if you transition from the regime that we have right now to that regime it will be extremely um disruptive.
1: Yeah, that that would create a lot of you would have a huge sure.
0: disruption yeah, because you would yeah. remove a lot of skilled workers especially from say medicine um but but a lot of other areas right but you know if it was just always like that right we might see it as totally normal that women just you know bake and have babies and stuff like that. And do the work. Yeah,
1: but you would still have an op- opportunity cost, right? Like, I think, for example, like Catalin Carrico, the inventor of, I think, the Pfizer uh, vaccine, mm-hmm. although it might have been one of the others, inventor of one of the vaccines, right? I think definitely it's better for her to be working than to be staying at home. Um, I Yeah, th- there is kind of a middle ground here. Right, where you just remove the kind of quota laws, you remove, uh, sort of, you remove the preferential treatment, but you know, you don't ban, you don't ban women from working. What would be the effect yeah, of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm sure, not but, sure. I'm right? not sure about that. I'm, yeah.
0: I'm prepared to take the other side of that and say that the world probably would be better if we, if we had like extreme anti-feminist laws. Um, because you, you would get, you do have a, a number of extremely talented women, but by removing them from, reproduction you know this, this is oh right yeah by removing them from, like you know this woman who made a vaccine but she didn't make 20 babies it, you know that's another 20 potential well 10 i guess potential vaccine scientists that you're missing from the next generation so it's it's sort of having women in the workforce is sort of eating the seed corn right you shouldn't do it uh, now, I mean, right, I,
1: like how how much of an IQ shredder effect is this creating?
0: Yeah, hmm. and and not just that, but also population shrinkage. Um, po- populations are shrinking. If you if you take away immigration, um, all of our populations are basically in terminal decline um, as a result of feminism. So the whole thing is a total disaster. And, and I mean, okay, you could see this as an extreme position. Maybe it's not true. I believe that it's true until proven otherwise but the more interesting thing is given that this is happening what political process allowed it to happen right and i think the answer is it's biolandism. it's there is a way for women to be in a functional human society and that is at home having babies baking doing woman stuff right and that will make a functional society that isn't like in terminal decline like ours is as in like the population is going to zero um but the reason we don't get that is because there would would be a relatively small group of loser women in that society who were basically ugly or lesbians or something else was wrong with them and so they would be losers in that society where women were basically there to have babies and bake and you know, be like trad wives or whatever. So those people who would lose in the world where things go well created the institution to make the world go badly because in that version where the world goes badly, they're the winners, right? The ugly woman who is rich, right? Or who gets to do a TED talk or, you know, who um, publishes a book on anti-racism or something like that. Those are the people who are steering our world in the wrong direction. At least that's my take on it.
1: Right. I think that kind of base level observation of, you know, that a lot of feminists would have things to lose is true. There is also the kind of, yeah, the Nina Power or Louise Perry take. It, it's weird because they're kind of like associated on the right with the right, but their positions are pretty economically left, mm-hmm. right? They're, uh, Nina at least is that compact. Um, yeah. I think that like their critique is also that it's in the business interests right that right. basically if you're a capital uh, if you're like a capital holder right if you're an investor it makes more sense to both flood the labor supply and the kind of resulting housing speculation is positive uh positive for them as well right right um yeah i'm i'm pretty skeptical of their economic case as well i think yeah i, I think like I don't know, like I still do think housing prices are sort of undervalued, at least in city centers. Um, but uh, yeah, when it comes to okay, so so the actual question is like what is the kind of political uh, political motivation yeah. for this happening right. whether it is good or bad. Well, yeah, right, because right. It, it can
0: be it, it can be good or bad, right? And I think it's I think it's bad, but you still need to, to, to posit you know, a political motivation for it to, to be realized, right? If, we, if somebody's going to change the world, or if the world is going to change, there has to be some group that's motivated to change it. And they have to have some motivation, they have to have some raison d'etre, and I think this is the raison d'etre of the feminism. And I mean, you know, there are some studies that I found that sort of backed it up, but I'm, but I mean, there's just sort of like a, there's sort of like an anecdotal point that, you know, if you if you find a meeting of feminists, you're gonna find some weird ass women there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I th- I think like okay. So here's the thing is that I don't know. He, here's something that I'm not quite sure about with regards to the biolenism biolenism stuff is that like I'm not sure people are that aware of their social perception right or or people are not that good at looking at contingencies especially on fairly extreme ones i don't think you know like the average feminist woman is like you know if this if we did not have um if we did not have you know women in the workplace maybe they're still opposed to that right but they're they're not making the connection there that if they did not have women in the workplace that they would lose status other relative to other women like i think they just dislike it right whether it's sort of on uh, whether it's sort of on, you know, right. like ideological grounds, emotional grounds. I don't think that kind of like no, causal I, d- reasoning I don't is no, there.
0: I don't think it's done strategically. So I think it works okay. a bit like evolution. You know, when yeah. when you can look at things, I and mean, creationists always use the evolution of an eye to disprove evolution, but actually, you can see people have done studies on this, and eye can in fact evolve stage by stage, where each stage is incrementally more useful. And I suspect that movements like wokeism and feminism and stuff like that have a mimetic evolution that's similar, where each stage of the movement is locally favoured, um, and in the end it assembles itself into a finished uh, bio-Leninist sort of blob, but it, it never knew that that's where it was going to go, it's just that it explores the space um, and the movement manages to grow in the directions that are most favourable. So, you know, to start with, so feminism didn't start off like this, right? It wasn't a big plan to create a world with a crashing population and high status for women who don't want to reproduce, right? It was actually originally pitched to women as basically an insurance policy against having a, a an incompetent man, because women's job right you know in the world in say the year eighteen ninety nine was to choose the right man and they didn't always manage to pull it off correctly. Obviously, right? Because, you know, there's fifty the fifty gender ratio and it's like basically it's not exactly a one to one pairing. The more successful men tend to get slightly more than one woman on average, but you know it was basically intense competition for, to get the good men. And so a decent number of women would end up with a man who was an alcoholic or stupid or incompetent or whatever the fuck was wrong with him. And so they wanted reforms so that they could have insurance. They could have a second chance if they got a bad man, right? That was first wave feminism. Um, You know, so, and that was, is actually a a good idea, right? Um, but it's one that, as we can see, you would have to deal with very carefully, because once you you know once you have – look, you, you start with a man and a woman, and you say, we're going to have this deal they're going to make called marriage, where the woman is going to give up some optionality when she's young, and the man is going to give up some optionality when he's old – um, and, you know, like the woman is going to make some promises about how she's going to behave and the man is going to make some promises about resources he's going to transfer and so on and so forth. And the woman's going to promise to give him paternity certainty. And it's just a whole bunch of these trades that marriage enables. And then when you sort of weaken that, right, um, you know, just with with you weaken it in order to uh, deal with those somewhat rare cases where the woman makes a really bad choice. Um, you also weaken it in the cases where she made a good choice and actually do more damage than if you hadn't done anything at all, right? Um, So I I think there's that sort of aspect to it. I think all of these things begin with, you know, like the eye did, with like a sort of a light-sensitive fold of skin that sort of gradually folds in on itself more and develops a lens and stuff like that. They, They all start small and build their way up. I mean, You know, now we're looking at the sort of complete edifice of wokeism and all of its sort of anti-epistemology that it's built up, and all of the institutions for suppressing dissent and you know intersectionality and all this stuff. You see, see, what intersection? Let me just go on a on a tangent about intersectionality here. Yeah, go ahead. What is from the New World podcast? Yeah, what is intersectionality? Right. Well, let's say you have a host, right. And you have a bunch of different parasites on the host, right? And this isn't meant to be any kind of call to violence or anything like that. You know, I'm not suggesting that we need to, 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 to harm anyone here. It's just an analogy, right? Nothing more. You have a host, you have a bunch of different parasites on it. You know, if those parasites could talk to each other, they might say something like, look, it's in our common interest to cooperate to suppress the host's immune system because what we all share, you know, one of us parasitizes the eye, and one of us parasitizes the leg, and stuff like that. Like we all do different things, but we're all opposed to the interests of the, of the host. So the host wants to, you know, deal with us all. We'll be more powerful, more successful if we cooperate in disabling the immune system, and that's kind of what intersectionality is, right? It's people. It's feminism. It's uh, sexual sort of um, oddities, like you know transsexuals, that kind of thing, uh, immigration, um, race, all of these different things that people, the, you know, this sort of quote-unquote original people in the society want to get rid of or want to not have, they all start cooperating with each other to sort of suppress any kind of immune response, right? Because they realise they have a, a common interest in that. And, and and sort of the, you know, the... um it seems that something similar happened with communism where you had the common interests of, um, you know, the peasants you had, I, I believe communism was popular with early feminists. You know, I believe it was also popular with nationalist movements, like a bunch of people get together and see like the Russian empire. And they're like, Oh, we have a common enemy here. We should all get together. Right. So I think intersectionality is this sort of, um, it's, it's an adaptation where different groups that are at odds with, you know, ordinary, traditional, heteronormative societies that existed in 1899, they all get together and realize they have a common interest. And that common interest is, you know, com- quote unquote, combating bigotry, right? Um, which is perhaps another way of saying suppressing an immune response, where the immune response is like, no, we, d- we actually don't want... Uh, you know, mass immigration, we don't want drag queen story hour, you know, we don't want race quotas, we don't want any of these things. Um, but if these, if these groups can all get together, they have a common interest. So that's, that's what I think is going on with intersectionality. And I think, you know, it's, it's quite interesting that you can watch the history of feminism develop over time. And you can see it sort of, you know, it starts with, well, we'll just have an insurance policy in case you pick the wrong man. And then a bit later on, it's like, well, actually, you know, now we need economic feminism. We need men and women to be, you know, completely equal in the workplace. And then later on, it's like, oh, you're not really a feminist unless you're gay, unless you support support transsexuals. And then later on, it's like, you're not really a feminist unless you're sort of gay and of a different race than the one that's traditionally in that country. And and it sort of becomes more and more of these intersecting identities because it's trying to maximize loyalty, right? Intersection maximize you know, it maximizes cooperation between groups that the underlying society doesn't like, and it maximizes the loyalty that those people have to each other. Because if, you know, if you're at the intersection of, you know, transsexual and black and a feminist, you know, you're going to be very loyal to other people who are transsexual black feminists because God help you if the woke movement doesn't work out, right? Like, you know, that's you're going to have a lot of enemies, right? Um, yeah,
1: or like even, especially with trans, right? Like they're, it's, it's not even just a social thing, it's like a biological thing where they actually need the medical infrastructure to actually, you know, like. Yeah not die, right. not be, not succumb to various infections and stuff. Right. And it really is like, yeah, it is quite, um, yeah, that part in particular with, with trans in particular, you know, I wonder, although almost all the time, I still do prefer a kind of non, and, and even actually with the kind of evolutionary language that I've noticed have become more popular, I I actually kind of dislike it just because it it, it is a bit ambiguous, right? I don't think most of it is on purpose, although maybe, you know, like a certain vaccine skeptic does it on purpose. It's kind of ambiguous where it's not, you're not sure when you say like it does something, I kind of understand that as like, oh, the the kind of selection effects that allow it to persist in the future are correlated with doing that thing. Right, but I think a lot of people, maybe not the listeners to this show, you know, like you guys are pretty smart. You guys always leave very smart comments, but um, you know, I, I definitely see some people online. Okay, I'll just say, you know, like every everyone knows I'm talking about Brett Weinstein. Okay, like pe- people who 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 say this stuff online and
0: who are basically what did what, what did know, Brett attractive. Weinstein what did Brett Weinstein say?
1: Right, so he he kind of talks about you know like the covid ideology as like wanting to enforce vaccines on people even though it's not safe like like right. this is his claim mm. not mine right and um like both of us can listen to that and say oh he's an evolutionary biologist he he really means you know like the incentives are for them to rush forward with vaccines even if they're not safe even if i neither of us believe that mm. right uh, and and so like he is kind of making an argument in a way that has sort of both, like, a... I don't know. I still think it's, like, pretty obviously wrong uh in terms of his his data sources and his argumentation right but at least is like less obviously dumb but at the same time is just kind of courting a lot of people who believe it for really kind of like totally absurd reasons Mm -hmm. right basically believe it because they think that like you know there's actually a smoke-filled back room and they're actually you know plotting plotting to have a bunch of um Uh, you know either vaccines to hurt people or so on and so forth yeah right right
0: well i mean i i think they i think they they might do one day um especially if they manage to basically discredit vaccine skepticism with a with a bunch of cases of people crying wolf and they get people to accept the idea that the government will get to put a new booster into your arm every six months, and if you refuse, then you lose your job. You know, if you got to a stage like that, then then maybe it would be possible to actually put something in it that's harmful to people or selectively harmful to your enemies. Um, if you manage to, to, you know, gain so much control over the media to get people to accept it as normal... Uh, you know, it's possible that something like that could happen. I just don't think that they're doing it right now because, you know, COVID took the authorities by surprise. They wouldn't have had time to actually plan anything nefarious and it would have taken a lot of planning.
1: Wait, this goes back to the thing we're talking about. Like the level of complexity of these things in terms of like planning complexity is just so low that I don't think... You know, like, the so, kind some, of some, shit look, some, that goes on yeah. at the FDA is, like, yeah. you know, I, 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 it's yeah, I, I, so many I, I, I levels of brain I, I don't like
0: think it's real. One of the reasons I got the vaccine was after examining, in my own mind, the possibility of some kind of conspiracy to create a harmful vaccine. You know, I just don't think they could have pulled it off for this one, right? Because COVID right. clearly took them by surprise. I don't think it's impossible they'll ever do it. Um but you know, I don't think they did it this time. And you know, look, authorities do occasionally manage to do things that are both complex and nefarious, right? Like you have um, Stuxnet, for example. You know, when 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 Stuxnet surfaced, people were shocked that a government could make such a complicated cyber weapon. I think we will eventually see the Stuxnet of bio. Right, we will eventually see some kind of targeted biological agent that somebody makes, but I just don't think we're there yet. I think we're fifteen years away from it.
1: Fifteen years. Fifteen years is not a long time, you know. Like, I don't think you know. Like, you kind of look at the inside of these things, or right? You look at the inside of uh, of the FDA. It's like, no, these are not people like Stuxnet is a sort of kind of individual operation actually maybe releasing, you know, like just like a bioweapon for the sake of like destruction, right. Releasing like smallpox. Yeah, Maybe that's feasible. Like maybe we we would believe that they're able to cover something like that up. Yeah. Right. But with regards to something that would have to be like novel technology in terms of engineering, something that's like selectively harmful, Mm. right? Like that's, you know, the, the level of complexity for well, that, I, mean, I, it I just, might not I just, even have to be not
0: something they're capable Well, of. I mean, it might not have to be novel tech. I mean, for example, if you just had um, an, a mapping that mapped a specific file of vaccine to a specific person, you could make sure that files of vaccine with certain serial numbers contained some kind of agent that was harmful. My
1: friend, do you know how fucked? like the current existing vaccine distribution.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I don't think it's something that they're going to be able to pull off um, right now. I think you, you know, if you talk about this sort of digital uh, vaccine infrastructure that, you know, like Tony Blair's talking about, um, you know, where everyone's going to have like a, there's going to be like a, a sort of national or international ID that everyone has. And it records which vaccines you've got, like once all that infrastructure is built out, then the final step of giving tainted files to specific people might be doable, right? But it's not doable at the moment, in my opinion.
1: So he, like, all of this is sort of, like, imagining a quantum leap Incompetence, <laughs> right? If right. anything, I expect it to go the opposite direction. Like I expect them well, to I be mean, less competent at distributing vaccines the yeah. next time. Than I, I time. mean, the, the, right? The, that is the dynamic of the FDA. Yeah. it is not the other way around. I mean,
0: the, the the question is, can this sort of vaccine infrastructure, uh, you know, be rolled out where you have a system of like, you know, IDs and maps each person to which shot they got cuz i mean yes the the system that they had for the covid right vaccines- like before you
1: get the right IDs of vaccines to the right places, you have to get like an order of magnitude of the right vaccines to the right places (laughs) and not have enormous amounts of overflow. Yeah. Right. Which is exactly what happened in the U S distribution of vaccines. Yeah. For, for coronavirus. So, so right.
0: Right. So just to some extent, the fact that it is sort of incompetent now is a reason to relax and just be chill and like, well, you know, um, Let's see whether they can, uh, you know, get to the stage where everyone just gets a vaccine quickly. And then after that, get to the stage where everyone not only gets vaccinated, but gets a digital record updated of when they get vaccinated. Because right now, the system was basically in order to travel in the early one or two years of this decade, you have to have like a physical printout of a, a, like a letter that you got when you got that like there wasn't any kind of integrated database across europe for it right if you want to travel right then,
1: right there was no yeah. kind of wechat style no, you know nothing. or chinese style active identification no. right like that's just something that you know maybe the chinese government is capable of but, but West, the western, western government, government is not capable like, of even given like a year right, right?
0: yeah and, and that i mean that sort of reassuring in a way because it means you you can be pretty sure that any kind of you know targeted attack on your own people would would basically be impossible to pull off um i don't think it's that they don't want to do it there are probably people who would want to do it but it would be difficult to pull off and basically impossible well i'm not going to say impossible to cover up but also difficult to cover up um I say
1: Right, right, yeah. This, this is basically exactly my position, Yeah, right? This, this is my kind of engagement. Maybe this is why I'm sort of still considered friend instead of enemy with a lot of the political theory, right? I'm like, yeah... like the regime is like pre-awful but it's also a incompetence incompetence, and b like not even like thinking it's sort of like pre-rational yeah right the things you have you you expected to do you know and i think i've had you know i talked about my 2022 prediction record on my end of year post i think i've had a pretty good prediction record right like this is like yeah I, i think maybe this is just a narcissism of small differences or maybe like I don't know because you seem to be kind of optimistic in terms of their ability to develop complexity. I'm like very pessimistic right. in terms of their well, ability to develop complexity. I wouldn't complexity. say in fact, I think it'll be negative. Yeah,
0: I wouldn't say optimistic. I would say I'm agnostic. I mean, let's see, let's see okay. as the data comes in how this actually progresses. Um, with like the WEF and you know uh, digital vaccine infrastructure and stuff like this. I mean, I think there is sort of a problem that worries me in the long term where there's a fork where either these people are so incompetent that we all eventually die of a lab leak or they're so competent that they actually have a very easy option to start killing us off or doing something else to us that's, that we don't want them to do uh, without us knowing about it, right? And, you know, I'm not really sure which one of these is worse. Hopefully we sort of end up going down some kind of middle road and kind of muddling through for a while. Um, But I mean, I I,
1: I would be much more scared of the incompetence. Yeah.
0: I I, I think you're probably right. I think that is probably the the higher probability path um, because look, what do we really think happened with the origin of COVID, right? I mean, do, you know, some people think it was a bioweapon, uh, or it was associated with the bioweapons program and that's why it was covered up yeah yeah while... ron
1: has been on this show yeah <laughs> who has <laughs> yeah uh, run oh
0: okay right
1: Run-uns, yeah. wow yeah <laughs> um
0: so i mean i'm i'm not hundred percent sure why they're covering it up so hard um but it's pretty clear that something is being covered up with the origins of covid and it seems likely to me that There is some relation between COVID, Wuhan, and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, So, you know, the regime is nefarious, at least in, in some ways, right? It's just... Perhaps I mean, it's like, it's like kindergarten
1: soccer. So, so Chamath Polyapatia had this description of the U.S. government uh, as like kindergarten soccer, where all of the kids, you know, race after the ball and they're all clustered together yeah. and tripping over each other. Right. There's there's there, there's like no strategy there. But if there's a clear objective, they'll kind of all go towards the right. objective in this weird, haphazard way. Right. Um, yeah. Like. I don't know. I think, I actually think that natural origin is sort of underrated. Mm. Just like looking at the evidence, I think that it's pretty underrated. Um, th- this is like my, my like double contrarian take. Right. Right. I think that probably it was a natural origin, like 80%, but if it wasn't a natural origin, it was probably not a lab leak and probably closer to what Ron Uns
0: thinks. What does, what does Ron Uns <laughs> think it was? That it was a US US engineered bioweapon. So does he think that COVID specifically was a bioweapon or that it was just sort of associated with a bioweapons program?
1: What do you mean? It was specifically released, whether it was natural okay, or right. engineered. So
0: I don't I don't think that's likely, but I do think it's somewhat likely that there was a program at WIV that was Partly sponsored by, you know, three letter agencies from the US that like to keep things secret. And, you know, they were making bioweapons and then testing them, uh, to see what they basically could, you know, be resistant against. I I
1: don't think WIV is like a a affiliate here, right? I, I mean, like in the natural, in the natural lab leak version, yeah. But in the, in the kind of intentional one, I don't think so, right? Like they, they would not be, they would not be aware of this if right. it was intentional.
0: Yeah, I, d- um, I, d- I don't think it was, it doesn't come across to me as intentional. The whole thing is too haphazard, too chaotic, uh, the regime didn't know what the fuck it was doing, um, every, everything was chaos, the, the, the message was being changed every six weeks. I think it was most likely some form of experimentation with some involvement with three letter agencies that want things to be covered up and kept hush hush. And it probably was a leak from WIV. And I think the strongest evidence that it was a leak from WIV is just the geographic coincidence and the, and the, you know, the amount that they're trying to keep, to keep it hushed up. Um Especially with things like the, you know, the kind of uh the fake Lancet letter and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm going to say I'll I'll assign a 60% probability to it being uh, associated with that lab and a 40% probability of it being something else.
1: Okay. Yeah, man, this was was quite a digression. Yeah, I'll I'll keep my point there that I still think... Yeah, I, I just think that, like, natural origin is underrated just in terms of, like... Just in terms of the population centers. Okay. Right? Just in terms of, like... Where you would have exposure points, where you have transit centers, Mm -hmm. and also like some period of kind of some kind of like incubation period where a virus is somewhat transmissible in between humans, but not nearly as infectious, not nearly as uh, transmissible um, and it's under that incubation period, and it's just unaware by the Chinese government and you know America and so on and so forth. Right, right. I, like, like the timeline. Like, here, here is my takeaway from like the the Ron Un's interview. Right, is that the lab leak timeline just doesn't make sense? But either of the other two makes sense. Right, and of the other two, I actually think the the, the natural origin timeline makes more sense. But I haven't I haven't dug into this for a, for a while now. Okay, man, it's 2023. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's 2020. So maybe yeah. I should update that at some point. I could do it now that I'm spending more time on the newsletter as well. Right. Yeah. But going back, going back, mm. and talking about you know what what is successful in current political and bureaucratic structures, and constructing a new order. When when we talked, when we had a bit of a pre-call here, you talked about the viability of crypto. Yeah. And I want you to dive into that. Why is crypto an opportunity for creating a new system?
0: Well, um, number one, it doesn't really have, there's no like third alternative, right? I mean, do, do you know of any alternative system of human coordination other than crypto that's happening right now?
1: Any alternative mm-hmm. system of coordination? right? I mean, so- like the Chinese communist party, oh, right? right? But I mean, like-
0: that's, still a bunch of people getting together in rooms and, you know, taking votes and, you know, maybe sometimes shooting each other and stuff like that. I mean, it's not really a different paradigm to what happened in, say, Europe, Russia or America. It's just slightly different people. Maybe, I guess you could say Chinese people have slightly different personality types. They're more sort of obedient naturally. So you tend to get more totalitarian societies when you build one perhaps, but I mean, that's pretty much the only difference I can see, right?
1: Yeah. Like, wait, so sorry, what do you mean an alternative to? Well, so sorry, I should have clarified that earlier. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. So like, I, I think crypto is, is an alternative way for people to do politics. Right.
1: Oh, I see. I thought you meant like an alternative economic system, you know, it, like all, Wall Street, yeah, Wall Street. Right. It's also an
0: alternative economic system as well, right? So Okay. Yeah. But crypto can also do politics, right? Because people can For sure. form <laughs> they can form DAOs, they can you know they they can ban certain transactions from happening, they can tax they can do all these things that you can do. Uh, with a polity, with with a country, it can all be done in crypto, right? Um, so,
1: uh, for the audience, give a little bit more detail on that. What is a DAO? Right. What do you mean by the things in a polity, right? What 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 would a day in life in the crypto system, in the crypto political system, look like? Maybe that's a good. Well, it's,
0: to do it's tough because it mostly. I mean, it mostly doesn't exist yet. This stuff is all very, um, very sort of new, and people don't really people don't really know what to do with crypto yet um you know one reason for that is that crypto is still struggling with um the technical side of scalability right so there was a big crypto bull run in 2017 slash 18 where great fortunes were made speculating on coins that were mostly useless right um there was some interesting activity on Ethereum. Um, Ethereum is a smart, I mean, let me just briefly run that down. You know, Ethereum is a smart contract platform, meaning you can write some code that is self-executing, right? So you, you create a smart contract. Um, that might be, it might be like a, the equivalent of a bank, uh, where you could deposit, uh, one asset and then take out a loan against it. Um, it might be something like a trading card game where you can collect these, uh, these specific trading cards. Um, so, you know, you can, you can do all, basically anything, anything you can program a computer to do. You can do on Ethereum. The problem was in 2017 slash 18, all this stuff was very, very unscalable, right? So you couldn't have millions of people, or billions of people using it because it just, it just wasn't viable, right? It would just, crash, but not crash. It would become too congested. Ethereum gas fees would become very high. Uh, so it would basically price everyone out because the, you know, the amount of computation per second that this, so Ethereum's like a distributed world computer. The amount of computation per second this computer can do is very low in 2017 slash 2018. Um, things have got somewhat better, uh, now, but still not great, but in the future, they'll get a lot better, at least according to the plan. So, you can create, you can do all sorts of things on this, right? Um, there's other things like um, the Urbit world is is dipping its toes into Ethereum via the Uckbar, uh L2 roll-up. Um, so you're going to be able to use... All-
1: and like even I'm only half understanding what those words are. <laughs> right, so so
0: Urbit um, for, for people who don't know what that is, um, it's basically this sort of... Um, weird reinvention of the internet by Curtis by Curtis Yarvin where it's sort of like the internet but it's designed to be more sovereign right so you have your own personal uh server you could think of um but it's it's not really it's not really a server it's more like um you know, in the ordinary inter- internet, you have a relationship between uh, the server and the client, right? So the server is like some big computer at Google, and the client is your laptop, and the application would be something like, say, Gmail or Google Search or Facebook or anything like that, right? Um, so, right. so what Urban is trying to do is do for the server side what the web browser did for the client side, right? So it's kind of like a standard server, if you like. Um, and, you know, standardizing on the server side means that ordinary people can actually own a server um, and easily install apps on the server so they don't have to rely on cloud computing. Because, yes, you can technically host your own website, uh, but it's really hard, right? Whereas with Urbit, the idea is all of that other stuff, you know, all of the... Backend annoyance will be sort of taken care of for you. Uh, you'll have your Urbit ship, um, and you'll just, you know, somebody will write an application for it and you'll install it and then that Urbit ship will run persistently. So it won't be like a computer that you switch on and off. You'll have like a box maybe that you, uh, that you sort of keep down by the router and it's sort of on all the time. Uh, or maybe you'll have it hosted, uh, in some third party place. But the key is with these Urbit ships, um, it's very easy to move them around, right? Whereas if you, if you host your website on AWS and Amazon kicks you off because you violated their hate speech rules or something like that, you know, it's kind of like a hassle to move it around. Um, there's, there's a whole stack of things that you need to make that work. Whereas the idea is with Urbit, it's very much plug and play. Uh, it's like an operating system, which is sort of, um, uh, functional. So, You know, you, you you can literally just move this thing around wherever you want, put it on any, any computer and it'll just work exactly the same. And then, then it can go and talk to all the other Urbit ships. So, I mean, Urbit is sort of like doing for the server what the web browser did for the client. Um, and it's this sort of, this idea of sovereign computing. Now, the people at Ukbar are trying to bring that into the world of crypto, uh, by having what's called an Ethereum L2 so you will not just be able to have your own personal server you'll also be able to have that personal server engage in economic transactions with other people's personal servers right and these economic transactions will be mediated uh on the ethereum blockchain using cryptocurrency right um so somebody could write uh an app for these orbit ships uh, of you know people's sort of personal servers um and then they could get paid you know, in crypto, right? So completely just totally sidestepping the government, right? The government just doesn't get a vote in any of this, right? It cannot stop you. It cannot tax you. Um, you can have this in any jurisdiction. You can have this in a satellite orbiting the earth if you really want. Although, of course, nobody's nobody's actually going to do that. But, you know, you can literally host this anywhere you want. So, I mean, why, why am I optimistic about this? Well, I mean, I may be mistaken. I mean, the whole thing may be just a sort of flash in the pan and all sort of seen as the... Uh, you know, the, the beanie babies of the early 21st century never really makes makes a splash. But, I mean, I think the ability to... The, the key thing with crypto is the ability for people to make these self-executed contracts, um, which allow them to basically play games, you know, in the game theory sense with each other, right? So if I want to... Um, if I want to pay you money in Ethereum, you know, we're using a self executing smart contract that, that basically ensures that I can't spend that same Ethereum twice. Right. I mean, that's kind of the basic problem that uh, Bitcoin solved. Uh, but you know, we can, we do all sorts of more complicated things. I can start up a bank on the blockchain where you deposit your Ethereum in my blockchain bank and I will give you some uh, stable coins to go and spend. And as long as the value of Ethereum doesn't drop below your liquidation level, you can basically borrow against your Ethereum like someone would take out a HELOC, right? Right. Um. So that's the economic side. Now, the, the political side, you know, hasn't really been explored that much, right? Um. But you can do all sorts of things with this, right? You could have a social network that was based on the blockchain. You can have websites that are based on blockchain that are unstoppable. You would have a social network where you set your own rules for what kind of speech is allowed, right? And nobody can stop it. Well, I guess maybe people's hardware could stop it, but you could even it probably wouldn't be that hard nowadays to just pay for people to have um, a blockchain enabled phone that wasn't under the control of Google or Apple, um, or even just you know use a web browser on an ordinary ordinary phone, um, and you could have your own social network, right? You could pay people um For doing certain things, right? So you could say something like, or we'll have a social network, certain types of speech are paid, certain types are banned, and you, the user, get to choose which one of these you subscribe to, right? Um, you can have, you can run businesses on the blockchain by paying people in crypto, right? So you, you know, you, this is, this is the beginning, in my opinion, of the great decoupling where people might live physically in the same city, but they might subscribe to a different, um, crypto state. They get paid in crypto. They associate with people who are part of the same sort of, um, you know, crypto nation or something. Um, and they get a bunch of benefits from that and people who are not part of it don't. And I mean, again, could be, could be completely crazy. Could be that this is all, you know, um, a sort of, uh, weird fever dream that the crypto people are having but i think it's worth giving it a shot right because you know it is an alternative to the sort of flesh and blood politics of you know committee rooms and um lawyers who are you know who go to like physical court buildings and stuff like that you know instead of all that you just have this stuff on the blockchain you can do science on the blockchain right you can have people publish papers as non-fungible tokens, and then you could have, you know, prediction markets, which will allow people to bet on certain outcomes, like how many citations is this paper going to have? Is it going to be replicated? And so on and so forth, right? All of this stuff can be, and, and that can sidestep the flesh and blood infrastructure of science, which has been so Prone to subversion, right? And I think, you know, the reason that a lot of these things get subverted is because the way these institutions function favors sort of people who are good at subverting stuff, right? Because a lot of this, you know, I mean, a lot of the decisions that are made about who's going to get the money, who's going to get the power, these decisions are not written down. They're not, they're not recorded anywhere in a database right it's all sort of like um it all goes by ties it all goes by you know who likes whom uh you know that somebody had like a like a discussion um you know in a you know in in somebody's private room or house or something like that and then it was sort of ratified in a committee later um these things can be done differently on chain on the blockchain uh everything can be sort of recorded. There can be economic incentives. If you have say a blockchain it's a blockchain institution for science and it seems like the people who have control over it are abusing it, well, you know, you can just fork it and make your own. And if the the version that's forked seems to be working better and producing more value, then the token associated with that one is probably going to be worth more, right? Um
1: Right. Yeah. So like Actually, I'll start with optimism. Okay. I'm very optimistic, actually, about doing it for science. Yeah. If you ever read like Jonathan Rauch's book, right? The Constitution of Knowledge. I think that it's that kind of vision is very good in terms of I think crypto is very compatible with that kind of vision. It would not surprise me if sort of like in, in the same way that we have like open source science now with data sets yeah. and stuff like that, or already some of it is like overlapping with crypto, right? In terms of how bounties are set. Yeah. But I think a lot more of like the future of open science is going to be uh, tied with crypto there, right. and especially, I think that will be especially with predi- especially
0: with prediction markets because yeah, yeah, you know, it opens science up to the rigors of the market. Yeah, uh,
1: in terms of like political governance, I'm not so sure. You know, like there's a the Max Weber quote: "the the the state is a monopoly on violence." Right. Right. I I think it's still the case that, you know, at the end of the day, almost everyone in almost every Western, almost everyone in every Western country can be tracked down physically by the government. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're not going to get any kind of alternate kind of, you're not going to get any kind of alternate state in the West. Although, you know um, I did a, I did part one of a book review of Balaji of The Network State recently I mean, like, I think that the kind of, like, generative communities that he talks about, I think that is going to be something that is possible. I'm not sure about having the leap to the state. I'm not
0: sure Yeah, that i that mean, kind of... The, the thing is, like, in America there are certain, um, there are certain institutions like the Mormons and the Scientologists um, who have or at least had so much power locally that you know they were kind of like a state within a state um there may not be any more but um you know who really like in america who really has the power i mean is it is it the soldiers with the guns I mean, a lot of the soldiers are, like, super right-wing, or at least they were until recently. I believe there was a bit of a
1: uh, I think they still are. purge
0: of the military. But, um, you know, they, they're relatively powerless, actually, right? Um, you know, power likes to hide, right? It's not in the obvious places. Soldiers with guns are not that powerful. Um, if you want to run a serious coup... Um, yes, you know, you need some people in the army to help you, but, I mean, usually the first target in a coup isn't other army units, it's actually uh, the media, right? Because what, you know, the real nexus of power is is the ability to distribute information to people, right? Uh, if you can persuade a lot of people to be on your side, if you can offer them rewards under the new system, um, you know, if you can sort of you know, grab, grab the radio and the TV, um, that's usually what it takes to, to have a successful coup. Now I'm not saying that crypto is going to cause coups. I'm just saying that the violence side of this may be less important than people think. Uh, it may be more about coordination, right? So who is allowed to communicate with whom, who is allowed to pay whom, right? Because if you have, you know, imagine you have a room with, uh, you know, a thousand people, right? And there's going to be a competition for who's in charge of the room. If you have a hundred people who are all very uh, well coordinated with each other and the other 900 are like total strangers, probably the 900, you know, hyper-coordinated, hyper-cooperative people uh, are going to win, right? Um, Right. They may lose some local fights, but their opposition is going to be divided, right? I mean, you know, you may have a case where, you know, you have like five of these guys from the coordinated group lose against 10 randoms, but then they get 20 of their guys to come over and win that little local fight. And you just get this same picture of, you know, the, the the more coordinated group winning. Um, So I think crypto is a coordination technology. It's a way for people to, you know, basically sign up to deals and say, look, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And that's very powerful, right? right?
1: Yeah. It, it, it's a kind of return to sort of explicit bargaining, which I think is very important. Yeah, right. Like um, friends of the show, the good old boys. Uh, they've they've talked about sort of who, who are the good old they boys. They find it
0: preferable, right? Who are the good old boys?
1: Uh, they, they're a podcast, a kind of like political theory okay. podcast. Um, but they, uh, so they uh, have this argument or they have this, they advocate for basically a state that is much more explicit with its deal-making, right? Basically, they they argue that now there's all sorts of in, indirect corruption through, you know, maybe it's through bio through these basically, you know, group positions. And it would actually, it's actually preferable if, you know, you just paid off the local union leader, right? That that's actually much less harmful to society as a whole than the sort of corruption that we have now. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, my take on this from the political point of view is that if you could just get groups of people to, you know, really coordinate with each other, a lot of these problems would go away, right? Because the, the reason that bio works is because the, you know, the attacking group have this sort of biological coordination mechanism, right? I mean, if, if we want to make a really simple analogy, and I'm not saying this is realistic imagine you have a country of a hundred million people, roughly the size of Germany or or Britain, and you have like a hundred thousand who are all pedophiles. Right. Uh, and they all, and and, then hypothetically, hypothetically, very important, hypothetically, (laughs) uh, they're all pedophiles and they all know that they're pedophiles and they have like a pedophile flag. Maybe it's like a rainbow with, uh, with like, you know, some slightly different colors. Hypothetically, hypothetically, right. um, and so they all have this pedophile flag and they all know who, and, and they know who their friends are. Their friends are the other pedophiles because, you know, if they fail, they're all going to get burnt at the stake together, right? So they're, to- you know, they, they've really kind of solved the loyalty problem pretty hard. You know, if any one of them tries to defect, right? You know, the others have a really, really strong incentive to punish that defector, right? Um, and then the other people, the other, you know, um, 99.9% are just sort of ordinary people who want to go about their, their business and have families and stuff like that. And they don't want their children to get molested. But, you know, they can't coordinate with, with each other, right? So they, you know, one of them will go ahead and make a deal with the pedophiles and say, look, I will uh, give you, um, ser- you know, I'll render my services to you, in exchange for you not abusing my children specifically. Or maybe you just abuse them a lot less. Like, they get a little bit of it, but much less than the average person is going to get. And then the pedophiles are like, okay, that's a deal, right? Uh, and then, you know, they just sort of go through the population and they find all of the people who they need to take control of the country and they just do this deal with them, right? Like, you cooperate with us, we'll leave your children alone, we'll get everyone else's, right? Um, and I mean, like, you know, this is a sort of, this is a very crude model, um, and, and the key to this is that, you know, the vast majority of the ordinary people in this country, they really don't want this to happen, but they just, like, they can't punish defectors, right? They can't find these people who are cooperating with the pedos and, like, go and, you know, burn the house down because it's like a, it's like a public good, right, amongst this majority, right? punishing the defectors is a public good and they can't do it right they they just don't have a way to do it so all these ordinary people are doing is they're sort of cowering in their houses and sort of keeping quiet and trying to keep their heads down and you know not be the the one that the eye of Sauron looks at right and the pedophiles win right because you know they have more coordination they have this threat that they can make against people um and they can punish, they're much more effective at punishing their own defectors. They have much less reason to defect. Because any one of these guys who sort of, so I'm, I'm going to be the one pedophile who's going to uh, cooperate with the ordinary people. Uh, well, you know, if you win, you lose because you get burnt at the stake because you're this kind of deviant. And your own sort of side has a very, very strong uh, incentive to to get you, Right. Um if you could just give these people the you know the ability to produce this public good of you know essentially winning, um punishing the people on their side who are defecting, giving resources to the people on their side who want to do something about the problem, uh, you know, sort of crowdfunding an effort to sort of oust these guys who they don't like from power, then they could win. It's just a problem of coordination it's just a problem of allocation of credit and allocation of demerit right that's what they can't solve right and a, I think a lot of problems come down to this at least that's the way I see it
1: yeah so so in this model there's sort of a kind of so in this model there's like a group affinity towards or a group preference of doing this thing of coordinating against them. I'm not sure if that's actually true. Like, I agree with you that, you know, this is like a classic political science result, you know, or political economy result. It maybe is the fundamental idea of political economy that concentrated groups, yes. uh, small concentrated groups beat large diffuse ones. Yes. Um, so, so the place where I really differ here, um, is the idea that like most people care all that much at all. Right? Like, like, you and I care. Right? Like, there is sort of a counter-elite that exists that cares. Actually, I'm not sure maybe if I differ at you at all. Is, is the idea that, like, the majority actually cares or that, you know, just a counter-elite cares and if you can get the counter-elite to coordinate, then they'll... Uh, they'll be able to solve the problem, right? I, I'm. I believe the latter. I don't really believe the former, that, like, the majority of people care.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a significant number of people do care, and you see this crop up when you actually have an honest vote that people can take, like the Brexit vote. Whenever the regime screws up, and it's rare, but they do occasionally, and gives people an honest vote, where there's, like, a vote where you can basically you know, say, I agree with the regime or I disagree with the regime, you know, a surprisingly large number of people will disagree, right? Um, and of those who...
1: Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I think people have, you know, like, basically conservative... There's a lot of people, obviously, who have conservative beliefs, like, they get a lot of votes. Yeah. But those aren't the people who are going to coordinate, right? Those are not the kind of new elites. Yes.
0: So you need... So you do... An, you do, Like, like right. who is crypto helping to coordinate, Right, so you do need an elite to actually do stuff, right? Um, Yes, yes. But you see, I think what crypto is going to allow is it's going to make it easier for people to support the people who are going to defend their interests, right? In the current system, it's very hard for somebody who is a a potential counter-elite to actually defend the true interests of, you know, their natural constituents, right? Because the regime has invented like a whole bunch of ways to derail that, and I think Moldbug, mold has done a pretty a pretty good job of of explaining how um, how that works in America with you know the. Um, you know, the way yeah, that the, the political system, the way that the political system is designed to diffuse any kind of real opposition, um, and sort of fil- filter it through basically, you know, congressmen who are really easy, um, to basically manipulate. So there's, there's this kind of like, you know, there's an official organ in society that's supposed to give ordinary people a say in how they're governed and it's basically being subverted right um yeah so what crypto i think might allow is a you know an alternative path a a path you know a path b for millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of ordinary people to support counter elites who are going to actually argue for their interests right um and an important part of that is the ability to filter out the fakers and the grifters and stuff like that. And I'm not right now I'm not quite sure how that is actually gonna work, right? But I'm sure it's still
1: Yeah, I was just about to ask, you know, how, how does crypto fake uh, how does crypto filter out the fakes? It doesn't at the moment. It
0: doesn't at the moment. <laughs> okay. right? But because it's Turing complete, if there's any answer at all, it can be implemented in crypto. And there probably are answers.
1: Well, I don't think that follows at all. You know, like this is primarily, you know, like the problem of like people lying to others and those people believing them is not, you know, like a computational problem. You know, like if you took enough effort, you know, you could make a reasonable guess at whether your current senators are lying to you when they make a political promise. Right. Right? Like this is a psychological problem, not a competition. You have a
0: rational ignorance problem there. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense for each individual person to do that investigation. So what you need is you need people to specialize, right, in keeping track of these things, in keeping you know, the implementers honest. And that sort of doesn't exist, right? Like there's sort of journalists, but that's being captured Um, there's the right wing press, but they're kind of like fraudsters or, well, grifters to some extent. Um, and, you know, to some extent that has been captured. And the, you know, the thing is the regime is allowed to exert influence on which opposition politicians and which opposition journalists are allowed to win, right? So there is, in theory, a set of systems that are supposed to work. It's just they've all been very, You know, carefully. You know, broken, basically, right? Like, you know, there are supposed to be ways to fight this, but they're broken. And whenever somebody really tries to push it, like you get someone like Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or someone like that, you you can see the system fighting to sort of economically starve them or drown them in lawsuits or something like that. They, They they always find a way to make it stop. Right? And I mean, I'd be interested actually in a sort of, um, you know, I'd be interested in a sort of uh, post-mortem of a lot more of these, you know, how the system beat these various, uh, potential, um, conservative counter-elites. I mean, a lot of people in the UK, um, uh, talk about Enoch Powell, for example, right? And he, you know, they got him by... For the audience, who's Enoch Powell? Enoch Powell. He's a he's a British politician. He's dead now. From I think he was prominent in the late fifties, if if I'm not mistaken, or early sixties. And he was um, basically against mass migration into Britain. And you know the, the the meme that's popular on the right now in Britain is like, oh, Enoch was right. E- you know everything he said that was going to happen, it's happened. But worse, um, you know, you have like. Muslim and Hindu gangs fighting on the streets of Birmingham. You have, like, ubiquitous acid attacks and motorcycle uh, robberies in London. Um, you know, you have, like, the Rotherham uh, sexual abuse of white girls scandal where basically, you know, like, tens or hundreds of thousands of... Well, I don't know the exact numbers, and there's, there's still some debate over it, but, but certainly a very large number of ethnically British girls were sexually abused by ethnically... Non-British men, um, you know, as as part of a sort of, and uh, specifically Muslims from, um, I believe, Pakistan and Bangladesh, you know, as part of a sort of targeted uh, racial slash sexual exploitation thing. So a lot of these bad things that this guy said would happen, I mean, I don't even think he said that would happen. I think that was sort of even beyond his predictions. But a lot of the things that, the kind of things that he said would happen, have happened. But at the time, he was sort of shouted down as like a racist and, um, you know, like ex- an extremist and stuff like that. I mean, but the thing is, a lot of this happened so long ago that I'm not actually aware of. I'd have to, I would love to speak with an expert on exactly how they got rid of him. Because my understanding of it is that he was popular. He probably would have won the popular vote, but he had to. Um, I think he was, like, expelled from the Conservative Party or something, or expelled from the Cabinet. So, like, there was a mechanism for British people to express the preference that they didn't want mass migration. A counter emerged, but, you know, there was this system where there's, like, a Cabinet, and, you know, there's, like, some kind of internal horse trading that happens, and, like, they somehow, they must have, like... I don't know exactly how it happened, but they they got him at that stage. So people were never really given a vote on whether they wanted Enoch or not. And if they'd been given a vote, yeah, they probably would have voted for him, right? Um,
1: yeah, it's like it's like the representatives. It's the representatives vote for the final two, and then the party members uh, vote vote among the final two, right? I'm I'm pretty sure that's how it works. I'm not. I'm not I, finished, I don't know. You see, and this
0: is the problem, right? I'm I'm from Britain, and I I don't even. I don't even bother with British politics because there's just no point because you only have, you know, you have like one bit that you can input every four years between, you know, a kind of left-wing conservative and a very left-wing Labour candidate. And it doesn't really matter that much, right? Uh, Most of the actual decision-making in politics happens in focus groups. So if you're not in a focus group you don't really matter, um, and what people say in focus groups is determined by what the media tells them, right? And what the media is going to tell people is determined by, you know, and so on and so forth, right? There's there's a causal chain um, that, that that it's kind of like very hard for an ordinary person to have any input into, uh, and it ultimately goes back to you know these institutions like the BBC, the universities, stuff like that. Um, and and kind of the, the types of beliefs that elites or that, that become popular amongst elites. And in Britain, that has become woke, right? So the wokes are taking over all the British institutions, uh, the universities, the National Trust, politics, journalism, everything, right? So it's very hard yeah. for people to have any real input into this, right? By the time an ordinary British person gets any input the decision's already been made and you just have two different flavours of the same thing. Right, um, right. So, right. you know, ha- coming back to crypto, how, you know, how does crypto change this? Well, it basically means that all of these institutions, you can just do an end run around them and have a DAO, have a decentralized autonomous organisation that people be- can become members of um, and they can directly okay. contribute to this, right? And this organisation can do... You know, it can do lobbying. It can build alternative institutions. It can run a social network. It can do all of these things, and it doesn't need permission from some bureauc- some from some woke bureaucrat, right? Um, you can just do it.
1: wait, wait. But like, was e- Enoch Powell stopped by you know like wokesters, or was he stopped by like the actual Conservative Party, right? Like the, and you can say that it's a problem that like the actual Conservative Party members stopped him, right? But at the same time, like if you had, uh, there's no, you know, it, it does not seem clear to me that you know had Enoch Powell had crypto, right? That there would have been some way for him to become, you know, like the Conservative Party leader. Well, right? or, he could or have beyond on the right, final He ballot. could
0: have made his own party and and received. Financial support from you know tens Wait, of but
1: he can still or like you can still make your own party in Britain, right? Like the the problem with that is not, you know, like technical, technical, like it's illegal to receive donations, but people just won't vote for you, or like sometimes people will, right? right? Like, so, like so, Nigel so, Farage, right. UKIP, so right, but he did
0: start a new party yes. and actually some people did vote yes, for him, right. So, right? so, here's what happened with UKIP, right? Um, okay. UKIP got more votes than the Scottish National Party, but UKIP's votes were geographically distributed, whereas the Scottish National Party's votes were concentrated. And because of right. the way the system works in Britain, you know, if you get forty nine percent of the votes in every single constituency, you get no seats, you get no power whatsoever, right? So you can yeah, have, it's the same deal in but America. But you have forty nine percent of the country supporting you right? And and you get no power whatsoever. And then you can have two other parties who each have 25.5% of the countries supporting them. And between them, they, you know, win every seat. And then power is basically a negotiation between these others. So you could have like the right-wing party that gets 49%, you know, the centre-left that gets 25.5%, and the far-left that gets another 25.5%, you know, the because of the geographical distribution, the right-wing party gets no seats. You have the, you know, radical left and the center left form the government, and then they get all the policies. So, you know, the the, the political systems, um, the systems that control voting, that control media, that control, you know, academia, these systems have all been sort of fine-tuned over the years to basically disenfranchise a lot of people, right? Like, Again, I I think it's a bit like the evolution of the eye. You know, it didn't like the idea of this. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I agree with you that there's kind of like an oligarchization, yeah. right, of, of these of these previously democratic processes. Yeah. The question is, right, like how does crypto make it so that people are going to be, you know, like if you're if your problem is like it is like geographic representation, right, like how is crypto actually going to solve that?
0: Well, so to start with, you can gather funds from a lot of people easily, right? You can also broadcast information back out to a lot of people easily, right? Because you would have a social network that people su- subscribe to. You can have crypto phones, that kind of thing. Um, so you can gather funds and you can put out propaganda, right? You can create okay. alternative institutions. You can pay people. I mean, you could say, yes, well, you could, you could technically do all that already within the existing system. Which is true, but, you know, these existing systems would probably start to find ways to stop you. So you only see this when these things actually start to succeed. So an example of when this actually started to succeed was Defend Europe, right? So this guy, Martin Selner, uh, and a couple of others started this Defend Europe organization at the height of the, you know, early, early, sort of mid-20-teens migration into Europe event, where you had lots of people coming across the Mediterranean Sea, there was this Austrian group uh, that spread out to Germany and France and a bunch of European countries. It was basically a sort of pan-European, ethno-nationalist-like group. And what happened to Defend Europe? Well, all of the big tech companies banned Defend Europe from all of the social media platforms. They classified it as hate speech. So they couldn't get the reach they needed to really get millions of people on board with their movement. And at the same time, there was some kind of legal kind of dirty lawfare tactics against the founders that used some kind of legislation to claim that it was like a hate organization or something like that. And I don't know what the outcome of that is. I'd love to find out from somebody. But I think it was basically just a sort of... Um, lawfare slash cock blocking tactic where it was just designed to like waste their time. Right. So you have the system react to them by cutting their reach, cutting their funding and using the legal system against them. And I think what you would find if you had some kind of Nigel Farage slash Enoch type in Britain who used the traditional uh, institutions, the traditional banking system, the traditional, uh, the, the big tech social media systems um, you know, the traditional TV networks. All of these things were sort of, you know, quote-unquote magically come together to suppress that movement, right? You would be shut off from the airwaves, all of your social media would be shut down as hate speech, they would make it illegal to finance you because they would find some law that said, oh, what you're doing is illegal, you're not allowed to do this, it's like financing hate or something like that. Uh, they would use laws against you. So, Basically, the regime is sort of adaptive, right? I mean, it's it's like technically you could try any of these things, but if you actually tried them, they would shoot you down.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now we're getting to things that I think are actually, you know, are actually changed by crypto. Yeah. Right? Like that, my, my problem with, with the previous stuff was like, you know, crypto is not actually going to change the ge- geographic election laws. <laughs> crypto does change, you know, like social media censorship yeah. and and payments. If, you know, if there are enough people. Yes. There I agree with you on. Yes. Yeah, there I agree so, so, with you on. But aren't. I mean, te- you know,
0: technically you could use crypto to coordinate uh, people all moving into one place if you really wanted to. But I mean, that's there's a lot of friction with people moving. So it's, it's much more likely that you would get traction by getting all the people in all of these disparate places, you know, all these like 40% here, 30% here people to like support this movement. And then, you know, instead of trying to win an election traditionally, just go out on the streets, cause chaos, um, you know, mass demonstrations. Uh, and then, of course, what will happen is, you know, the regime will kind of react. It will try to sort of, um, you know, punish people who do this. And then if you have your own system for payments and your own system for media that they can't block, you can pay people who get punished so that you sort of support your own side and you can keep getting your message out, right? Right. Uh, and if your message is, you know, oh, we don't like this, um, then, you know, eventually the regime is going to have to make some concessions or maybe you even topple the regime. But I mean, you know, to- again, toppling is it's not something I'm particularly a fan of because, you know, you generally want to achieve something with as little friction as you can. And, and the best way to do that Is generally to make a deal, to show that you have the ability to exercise power and then say, look, let's cut a deal. You have to make these concessions. Um, You have to, you know, allow proper representation of this group that feels like it's, you know, basically being screwed over by the existing system. Um, Yeah, which is, you
1: know, like in many cases, a majority group, right? Which is pretty funny. Yeah. So, okay, so increased... Or like increased ability to coordinate yes. via social media, via transactions, leads to a sort of increased democratic participation, and then this, or like not necessarily just democratic, but sort of um, coordinated demonstrations, marches, and then that leads to that leads to a political change.
0: Yeah, like I'm. <laughs> And, and and the other thing is, if you you know, the the existing political parties are very much up for grabs, right? Like if you can coordinate messaging, uh,
1: I think the, the the conservative existing conservative party is up for grabs. Yeah. I don't think the same is true for uh, the liberal parties around the world, right? But, but whether c- they be Labour right. or the Democrats,
0: but, but c- yeah. certainly the, the certainly the the right wing party, the conservatives, and to some extent the liberal democrats as well. Uh, You know, these these people are fundamentally entrepreneurial and they will, you know, if they can see which direction the wind is blowing, uh, you know, there's a big populist movement that wants X, Y, and Z, you know, either they will accept that message and become part of it or they'll get kicked out by somebody else who will, right? So,
1: yeah, I mean, like, you know, this is basically what happened in America, right? The the populist wing has won, right? Internally. The, the, the GOP, you know, the the Republican Party is now populist. Yeah. Now what? But the, but right? the and, Portland, and then, like, Trump, right. Trump came into office. Yeah. He had a lot of legal power, yes. right, despite what, you know, like they say, you know, there was interference with the bureaucracy. It's like, sure, sure. Yeah. There, there absolutely was, especially when it came to COVID. Sure. Right. And then, you know, So, like, so what? It's not going to get better from
0: here. Yeah, but the problem you see with Trump is that he's kind of stupid and his people were kind of stupid and they didn't get anything done, right? And it wasn't very difficult for his opponents to basically just cock-block him for the whole time because the American system is designed with a bunch of checks and balances and, you know... If, if the more powerful side temporarily suffers a setback and all they have to do is defend in this system that's like really, really optimized for defending, it's not very difficult for them, right? Especially, yes, I agree. Especially if the guy in charge is fundamentally stupid. Uh, his, like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're
1: in agreement here, right. right? The question is like, how does crypto change this?
0: How does, well, <laughs> now, now you're asking the hard questions, right? I mean, to start with, you know, you're going to have some degree of competition for who gets to represent people. Now the, the problem is, you know, you, you might say, well, yes, there's going to be competition and it's going to be like a race to the bottom. It's going to be like QAnon, right? Um, you know, to, to some extent that experiment has been run, you know, if people just can listen to anything they want to and political entrepreneurs can put out any kind of message they want, who wins? And it's like, you know, QAnon. Right. Um, so, you know, that there, there is a sort of black pill version of this where, you know, you'll just get a bunch of dumb, stupid shit that, that can't get anything done. And that's what wins, at least in the short term. And yeah, I suspect that's I suspect that's correct for the short term. Right. And when you look at what actually happens in crypto on the financial side, on the economic side, uh, people have a lot of these big dreams. But what actually wins is dog coins. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Um, but, you know, it's young. Um, you wouldn't necessarily expect something new like this to work amazingly out of the box. If you want to do anything more complicated, it requires more effort, more developer time. You don't have the scalability. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have extremely high expectations for crypto in the short term. Um I do think that it has the ability to solve these problems. But when you ask a question like, how can you make a system which actually does what people want rather than what they say they want or what the regime makes them say they want in order for them to keep their jobs or any of these other things, I think if anything has a shot, it's going to be crypto. I don't know what the design of those institutions is going to be like, right? I mean, maybe it'll be something like, People, you know, increasingly entrust their financial and digital well-being to like some kind of personal AI or something like that um, that you that you have running on a sovereign computer, and eventually those things will start making deals with each other, and that's how you will get a sort of do what do what I want machine. Because because this is the real problem, right? Like, you know, democratic politics is supposed to be a do what I want machine right you're supposed to have uh representatives who represent what people want and civil servants who execute it the problem is that the system is kind of easy to hack right um so you want a system like that but it's secure right so you know you need a, if you're going to have some kind of um alternative political system that doesn't end up going the way of qAnon and Trumpism it needs to have um a bit more structure right so it needs to have some kind of internal immune system against bullshit and i think that's what is kind of missing from uh a lot of right wing and left wing actually politics at the moment especially the far left stuff right um it's just that the you know the left has been doing well so we don't notice their follies but i mean if you dig into some of their stuff in any more detail you see that there's a lot of stupidity in yeah well. yeah
1: there, there's I, a kind of like convergence on stupidity yeah. on both ends right.
0: here we, the, that, that's, the actually problem, we, that's actually right. where we started the topology of of horseshoes right
1: yeah yeah I, I think like actually actually richard nania has a great article one of many great articles on this Right. He talks about I think this is the Liberals Read, Conservatives Watch T V one. Yeah. He talks about basically directional and non directional lying, right? Like you can you can notice that like the stupid stuff on the left is highly correlated and the stupid stuff on the right is like mostly uncorrelated, right? Right. Like like what makes the right, you know, like simultaneously freak out about, you know, like COVID vaccines and like um or like a very good example of this that that Hanania brings up is basically like Dems are the real racists yeah. right which which might be true in some ways right like i've kind of talked about the the Amy Chua book right you know affirmative action is definitely like A racist policy in reality, right? But you can see, like, you can see very silly versions of this argument, which Hanania points out, where they talk about, you know, like, they they try to, like, re-envision MLK as some sort of conservative icon, (laughs) or they try to say, you know, like, the Democrats were the party that supported slavery, right? Yeah, it's it's like, look at the map of the Democratic states, and look at the map of those states now, right? Like, these very silly versions of the arguments that are basically, you know, Um, these kind of like short-term ephemeral arguments that don't actually, you know, don't actually reflect any kind of coherent ideology or any kind of even like coherent set of beliefs, right? Like that's the thing that Hanania is criticizing here. And I think he's like basically absolutely right here where the GOP does not, or like the voters do not push their, or like the voters or the media or like whatever thing directs, you know, emergent thing directs the GOP right does not push it towards any kind of you know principle over time. Instead, it pr- it, it just directs it towards whatever is most expedient to react yeah. to.
0: So what you what you notice here, I think, is there is a public good that's being underproduced, right? Which is basically some kind of uh, sense of coherence or um, strategy or something like that. Um. And uh, you know, it turns out that you know crypto is good at um turning you know public goods into something like club goods, right? Um because you can look, if you have a problem that you have a lot of political commentators who say stuff that's kind of dumb and off message, but like sort of immediately popular, right? Then Instead of just sort of promoting them all and allowing a total free-for-all, you can have a sort of organization that has some filters on it, and you have to pass those filters in order to be allowed in. And if you're not allowed in, you don't get onto its distribution channels, right? And, you know, well, somebody else could set up a rival organization that doesn't have those filters, but the idea would be in the long term, the one with the strategy is going to you know, win, right? Because that's kind of the point of coherence, strategy, etc. is that over the long term, you do better. So I, you know, I do think that a lot of these problems do have solutions that are ultimately, you know, some kind of, some kind of game is being played and you need to sort of fix it somehow. And you can probably solve those with crypto, right? Well, you can definitely solve them, right? But the question is, can you get the, can you get the sort of traction um, can you get can you get the ink can you get the scalability of the user interface um, to actually get tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people to be using this stuff um, and you know i mean that that is the real blocker at the moment right like if you have that kind of traction and scalability, then it wouldn't be that hard for people like me to say, well, look, instead of having just anyone be able to say whatever they want on your distribution channels or as part of your DAO or something like that, you need to have, like, some ground rules and you need to um, you, know, you need to have a system that implements those rules in order for people to be a part of your organization, right? Uh, and this is how you would kind of kick out the QAnon types, right? And And they would go off into their own little corner and eventually die off.
1: Right, yeah, I'm. Like, I, I kind of get what you're saying here, right? It, we can break it down into three layers here that I think where our interpretations differ. I think it's like aligning aligning, uh, people or like aligning the population or like the the main supporters, right? The 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 mass with the with the elites, and then aligning the elites with the problem, mm. right? Or, like, aligning the elites with the solution. And you're talking about mostly things that align the mass with the elites, right? Where I don't think that's enough, right? Like, I think that, you know, even if the conservative elites, you know, suddenly woke up and they all, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, um, it's like Christmas Carol. They've woken up. They've decided to act in the best interest of their voters, yeah. you know. And then they are going off, and they're going to try to coordinate this policy. Yeah, I do not think that you know, like the current, like just just competence level of the conservative elites are enough to accomplish that, even if they were all good
0: things, right? Um, maybe, but I mean. You know, it might be the case that if you paid better, you might get better people. You probably would. I think a lot of the problem is that the conservative elites who are supposed to be solving this problem are going into finance instead because the money's better. Whereas the liberal elites care less about money and so they actually work for the New York Times or for the Democratic Party or something like that. And so that's why the left always wins in politics.
1: Yeah, like this is, this is literally, this is like precisely the point of another, of another Hanania article, right? Actually, one of the articles that we discussed the first episode he was on. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So, I, so, I think that's true. So, so you know, if you, true. if
0: you had crypto, you could actually pay, or well, maybe you could pay people, you know, a, a little bit more based upon results, uh, and you might solve that problem. Now, of course, Again, it's early days. If you look at what's actually happening in crypto, it's a mess. It's corrupt. It's, you know, actually very centralized at the moment um, because, well, you know, centralized actors have a huge advantage if they can coordinate to manipulate markets. And so crypto is sort of very you know it's it's kind of an anarchy at the moment with a couple of big powerful players so it's a it's a very long way away from that but it has the potential in my opinion and i don't think any I don't think anything else has the potential right i mean if you if you try and solve any of these problems without crypto right if you're using the legacy banking system you'll get unbanked because the banks can just like you know and they have done this they did this to Andrew Tate I believe they can literally remove your bank account just because they don't like your political views, right? They can, and they, and then, you know, if you, if you're on social media, they can label all of your content as hate speech because they can just do that. There's no law that says that they can't, right? So you can't even get a message out. And you see this, this is the problem, right? If you have an alternative message and you're considering being a conservative political entrepreneur like, um, Martin Selmer, right? You know, you, you now know that if you even try that, they're just going to ban everything, right? So what's the point in even trying, right? So I, I just, I just don't think, I don't think there is an alternative to crypto that like all the traditional institutions, the banking system, the legal system, the media system, the scientific system, these are all corrupted. They're all infiltrated by the enemy and they can't be used, right? Um, Crypto is the only solution. There's there's no other solution. I mean, maybe if aliens come and visit Earth and give us some kind of magical crystals that, that allow humans to coordinate, right? Or, you know, something else that I haven't thought of, then maybe you could use that instead. But right now it's crypto or nothing.
1: Yeah, I, I think, like, the idea is, right, you, we need a change in kind, right? It just can't be a change in... You know, it can't be the same existing technologies because the existing technologies have been tried. Um, it's not...
0: The, the problem isn't the technology. It's the fact that they're centralized and your opponent controls all of these necks of power, right? They control right, right, Facebook, but, but they control Google, say, like, they control the BBC, they control the banks, they control the legal system, they control it all. It's all booby-trapped. Right, right. But the
1: point you know like there's there's two kind of ways of viewing the control right and i'm not sure if we actually differ on this there is sort of like the the total way and the kind of evolutionary way right like when when you say you know like the left wing controls law i think i agree to you to the point where like law is kind of like evolutionarily shaped iteratively shaped in their favor right with things like hr law and so on right. and so forth i agree with you there but you know like those laws can be repealed you know in the traditional way right, right. by by you know like signing like if if the like the 2017 congress wanted to repeal the hr laws they could have right they just they simply did not and
0: why why do you right? why do you think they didn't
1: Because they're incompetent.
0: You think it was really just that they didn't.
1: Like, this goes back to, like, here, here's the problem, right? Like, it goes back to what we were talking about before, right? There are two kind of, of groups of connections here. There's the, there's the connection between the people and the elite and the elite and the policy. And I think that, you know, like, the the connection to the elite, between the elite and the policy is just not there. And, like, that's what needs to be changed. And that's not going to be changed through crypto. That's going to be changed through, like, various explicit movements say, you know, like, I'm in favor of what new founding is doing, you know, like, I'm not sure if they exactly agree with me on a lot of stuff. I I think they're like more immigration restrictionist than me, Mm -hmm. right, which is, you know, like, sure. But in general, right, like, I think what's going to happen is there needs to be basically like a much more of an elite phenomenon. I'm not sure, you know, like we talked about a little bit earlier, maybe crypto makes, you know, fundraising easier, like sure, like, like marginally, these things make a positive impact but in terms of where you know like the center of the probability distribution is i don't think it's anything that happens on the kind of like in terms of like connecting the mass to the elites right. i think it has to happen on the level of connecting the elites into the into the policy right. and actually making the elites fundamentally more competent
0: right yeah so why so so why didn't the 20 so the 2017 congress could have made some changes to the law Specifically to do with yeah
1: they could have they could have removed large parts of basically HR law the same stuff that makes it illegal to you know point out you know crime statistics right. or you know to say you know a man is an uh, adult human uh, male right. woman adult f- human female so on and so forth right
0: so they could have done that but they didn't and you're saying the reason they didn't is because they're sort of drooling retard[s] with an IQ of like 30 who just didn't think of that. I'm not sure I believe
1: that. That's a bit extreme, but they're, they're not coordinated around basically, they, they don't care about winning power, right? They, they may be smart enough to like think about their next election strategically, right. right? But they don't have a kind of long-term right. vision. They don't have
0: sense, a vision. Right? So a they
1: they don't read enough Richard Nanya.
0: <laughs> right. So basically like it's a bunch of guys who got into Congress, um, and the Senate and they were like, Oh, this is nice let's just chill the fuck out and not do anything um, because they didn't have, because they were kind of leaderless or because their leaders were kind of stupid. I mean, I actually had some involvement with the Trump campaign um, in the sense that I was involved in a data science effort to try to dig into this idea that the election might've been fraudulent. And, my my experience with that was just that it seemed like the Trump guys were really stupid. Like we had a bunch of people with skills, but um, there was, there was no coordination. There was no, like, you know, I said, look, we need to make a centralized repository of all of the data that everyone has access to. And ideally any kind, you know, maybe there's like some subscription that, um, you know, for like, for like better data that we could pay for. Can we just like pay for that centrally with some campaign funds or something like that? And then just like, get this set up and just like, you know, nobody did anything, right. There was a big sort of bystander phenomenon in that effort. And you know, I mean, a, a couple of people tried some basic statistical tests. Uh, there was, like, a lot of fuss about Benford's law, but nothing really. Like, I don't think you would, like, any kind of competent cheating, if it did happen, wouldn't be caught uh, by that kind of thing. You would, you really need much more, uh basically, you need, like, a full data set of when every single vote was was counted at every single station on the finest spatial resolution possible and, like, nobody wanted to bother to collect that data.
1: Yeah, right? I think that's mostly COPE. I mean, look,
0: I'm not sure whether or not it was COPE. I didn't find any conclusive evidence. Um...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, okay. There's a version of this, right. There's a version of this that's like, um, you know, big tech stole the election by censoring the Hunter Biden laptop. And it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Like they, they definitely did censor the Hunter Biden laptop, but when it comes to like the votes cast, right. The actual, you know, like votes on paper, I think it's like just in terms of like probability distributions, right. Just in terms of like how much, how much of a trail would you need to leave to say, Um, to say, uh, swing even just one state, right? The the probability distribution—it's just so far to the right edge.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, putting that to one side, my you know my experience with that was that the effort was not particularly well coordinated. Like there wasn't there wasn't a competent person who made it their job to make this thing succeed and collect the best possible data all in one place and then farm it out to different data scientists to analyze, right? It was a bunch of people heading off on their own and doing their own thing. And as such, it was inefficient. So, I mean, to the extent that I have any personal experience with it, that's my experience. Um, and it seemed like the people on the Trump side were like dumb, Right, like they weren't like thirty IQ. They were like one hundred and ten IQ conservative types um, who didn't know anything about data science um, and didn't really have much time to dedicate to this. Like that was the impression I got of them, Um, and that's kind of how you lose, right? Because maybe maybe the Dems did cheat. I mean, I think it's look. Personally, I think cheating isn't a binary thing. It's a sliding scale, right? And, and, and it would be more a question of finding out where you were on that scale than, than a yes or no answer. Um, but if there was something that was like pretty extreme amounts of cheating, I don't think we would have found it because we didn't have the data. And in fact, not, you know, the data should have been collected as the votes were coming in, right? Instead of like waiting until Trump had lost. And then saying, oh shit, what are we going to do about this? Right? Um, and, you know, like, there, there were even people who were kind of vaguely willing to uh, to fund this, but they were sort of hesitant because they were like, well, Trump seems kind of incompetent. I don't trust him with my money. Right?
1: Yeah, like, which was a correct perception. Which was
0: correct. Which was correct. Yeah. Right?
1: Like like he, here's the thing, right? Like these are not, you know, like uncorrelated variables. Right. right? It it's sort of the same thing that we we were talking about earlier, right? Like your your trust in kind of like the Trump campaigns, you know, claims about this should be correlated to like their general competence.
0: Yes. Yeah. But I, right, so you know, I can imagine that you have a similar problem playing out on the legal side where you know there's a bunch of politicians with their own sort of problems and their own concerns and there's a lack of overall strategy, right? Um I mean I don't know what they spent their time doing. And maybe you know better than I do, but it certainly doesn't seem like they spent it optimally. Like my impression of the Trump presidency is that that the only important thing he did was win. And that he could have like literally won the election had a heart attack the day after, and it would have basically been the same thing.
1: Right, it would have been better. Yeah, it would yeah, have been better. Like,
0: yeah, because he wouldn't have fucking embarrassed himself, right?
1: Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly, exactly. This is like the Ann Coulter take, yeah. right? Which which I think is, like, mostly correct, that, like, the, the Trump campaign was a net good, and then, like, the Trump presidency the net, was a huge yeah. net L, yeah. right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you see, like... This this is a failure on an institutional level, because you could have had the same message, but with competent people behind it, and then it would have achieved something.
1: Right, right. But but the the point is that these these are not like uncorrelated variables, right? Like the the thing is that like the conservative base chose Trump, right? right? Like they like they're the same people. They, they chose Trump, Yeah, they're the same people, right, who, and, and you know, like, there are some people who are doing good work like, you know, New Founding, like um, sorab's thing, Saurabh Sharma's thing, um, American Moments, mm-hmm. right? There are some efforts to, to you know, make this, make the next time different from the previous It's right. Like, okay, you know, best of luck, <laughs> right? Best
0: of luck. Right, but, but you know, The thing is, there is a clear formula for for winning here, right? It's to connect the right message with people who can actually implement it, right? And that, that was a failure in the case of Trump because Trump had the message and he also had the money to back it, but he didn't have the people to execute, right? Because he's fundamentally, he's like a frat boy. He's kind of like an old frat boy, right? Like he likes grabbing women by the pussy and playing golf and, you know, doing business deals and stuff like that. But, you know, he's not, he doesn't have the intellectual weight to actually wage uh, essentially a, a really important culture war on behalf of his constituents. And what his, you know, what the constituents chose was a person who they could personally relate to. But a lot of these constituents, you know, they, you know they're kind of like ordinary people who maybe aren't super high IQ. Maybe they're like 100, 110, 90, whatever. But they don't. They, they definitely get the feel that they're co- feeling that their country is being kind of subverted and taken away from them, which is correct. The problem is, you know, that desire to fix the problem was never actually connected with a, with a machine that could actually fulfill it. Right, yeah,
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we
0: basically agree on this point. Right. But the the the, the, the disagreement to 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 the extent that we do have disagreement is how this is going to be solved, right? And I mean, I think the you know I think the the problem the solution that's going to work is attacking the problem from the side, right? Not attacking it head on. Not trying to make the next Trump actually be successful because. You know, not only will it probably go wrong for the same reason that this one went wrong, but also the, the opposition will have, you know, they'll have wised up, right? And they'll be stronger, right? Um, but it's to solve political problems for, for other issues, things that are not culturable, right? Um, it's to make an entirely separate, independent system of human organization on crypto that sort of wins at a whole bunch of other things first. And then, like, as the very last thing, it also goes and fixes politics, right? The kind of, like, how the first computers were not used for... You know, medical records or government work or anything. Well, they actually were used for government work, but not like, um you know, not like for for your local authorities or uh, the local council, right? You know, the, the first computers, they found applications in computer games. They found applications in porn. The military liked them. Um, you know, they had a whole bunch of applications way before they arrived at your workplace, right? Uh, way, you know, nowadays, everything is organized on computers, right? Your social life, your work life, all of this stuff. But the earliest computers, you know, the web was invented at CERN, right? You know, like exchanging technical papers between particle physicists is not the most important thing that the web does right now. Nevertheless, that turned out to be a good place to incubate it. So I, I, I think... I don't think any kind of direct attack on politics stands any chance of working whatsoever. I think it's far more likely to develop a system of DAOs that deals with things like, you know, how to distribute NFT drops or how to manage the treasury of a DeFi protocol or something like that and build up the infrastructure there and, you know, get all of this technical stuff done, understand the problems, understand the advantages and disadvantages And then eventually, one day in the future, people will be like, oh, we have this alternative system. Why don't we use that for, like, say, the local, you know, local political issues, right? And then once it works there, it's like, oh, actually, we can use this for national issues, right? And, and you know, the other thing is, like, people living more and more online, right? So sovereign computing is, I think, going to be more and more important uh, compared to the physical stuff, right? Yes, people will still have to eat, people will still have to have heating for their house, um, but stuff that goes on online will become more and more important, right? And maybe if something like, um, you know, maybe if we get things like Neuralink, um, you know, and virtual reality and stuff like that, it'll actually be the only thing, almost the only thing that really matters. So it may be that if you even spend any of your thought cycles on the GOP and the Senate and, um, you know, what happens, uh, you know, who's, who's gonna like, um, you know, who's gonna build a wall to keep the Mexicans out and stuff like that, it's all just a waste of time because this stuff's all gonna get sort of leapfrogged technologically anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, I think, I think AI is going to be, a big deal here. That's uh, what well, yeah. you know. Yeah, I'm finally, you know, finally entering the arena. Right. Um, that's what I'm working on right now. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know. To to kind of finish off the debate on on crypto. Yeah, I, I do think like you make a good point about you know the first layer of kind of social media interactions and donations. Yeah, those are those are real applications. Sure. When it comes to actually, you know, like there's a chance that that might trickle down to the elites, but I just, you know, maybe I'm dumb, but I'm just not seeing a kind of clear path of that happening.
0: Well, I, I think the path is actually for crypto to try and replace the elites. Like the idea of, because, you know, elites basically have this massive principal agent problem. And one of the most important yeah. things that crypto does is it, it deals with principal agent problems by getting rid of, of the agent.
1: Wait, wait, no, actually, I, I disagree with this, right? Like, the, the problem is not that the elites are not enough like the masses. Like, it, the problem if they, they would, were more like the
0: masses, it would be even it would worse be because they would be more incompetent. Right, but you see, yeah. you know, if, if, you, if you had a way to guarantee alignment between the machine that executes the preferences with the, you know, the, the people who actually have those preferences, then you could allow more competition for who gets to be the executor, right? So okay, you could have a sort of see. market for execution. And I, I think in that market for execution, people like Donald Trump would lose really badly because they actually suck, right? Um, but you see, because, you know, alignment is like so hard, right? You have to, finish.
1: right? Right, but the, here, here is the problem again. Right, it was not sort of like the, the problem was not that you can't easily observe a track record, right? Th- this is what re-election does, right? Yeah. Like, if the masses, like it, it doesn't matter if the crypto markets were like very clearly here, are the promises Donald Trump broke, yeah. right? Everyone knows the d- promises that Donald Trump broke, right. and they voted but the, for
0: but him the, anyway. But the problem is they don't see an alternative that's equally aligned but more competent. Right. So because alignment is so like the reason Donald Trump won is because he was so clearly signaling alignment with the ordinary people. That they, they were like, oh, this is like the one politician who's actually on our side. So we don't care how incompetent he is, because it's like, you know, if you're going to, you know, like, I don't know, I mean, if you're let's say you have, uh, let's say you're putting your baby up for adoption, right? And you're in a country where almost everyone is a baby eater. And you find that one person who doesn't eat babies, but, but you know, they're actually, the house is a mess, right? You're still going to give your baby to them because they're the only person who doesn't eat babies, right? Um, that's kind of what Donald Trump was. He was like the only politician who was on the ordinary people's side. So they had to choose him. But You see, if you had a system where it was much easier to ensure alignment, you could use more of your selection points on competence, right? And you.
1: Okay, I see. Right. So,
0: so our ability to solve these problems is sort of constrained by these shitty um, old legacy world institutions that are from the 18th century. Um, And I think maybe crypto institutions will beat that eventually, right? And and maybe AI will also be able to help with that if you have a way to guarantee the alignment of an AI with a certain set of preferences, right? So maybe that you can do something like run an AI on some kind of sovereign computing setup and have that AI execute, um, you know, provide inputs to a smart contract. So one one. Very sort of concrete thing you could do is you could build a social network that was moderated by an AI and that AI could provably have certain political preferences, right? In, you know, that might be your first step. You know, you've, you've actually created, um, that, that's your first proto friendly AI is basically a sensor or a, an AI that decides which messages get censored, which ones get signal boosted, which you can prove that it has certain preferences. And it, it, you can also ensure that, that its will is executed because it's inputting information into a smart contract. There's no human who can get in the way. So, so that might be your first step uh, towards solving these kind of principal agent problems. Right, right.
1: Yeah. Okay. I'm kind of seeing this a bit more clearly now. Yeah. So, so, so the main, so the main point is that like a change in the in the first, in the in the Toronto or sorry in the fuck. So, so the main point is like a change in the the connection between elites and the public uh, changes the grounds in which elite selection occurs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I can kind of see a world where this happens. This is kind of like the high trust society thing. Um Yeah, yeah.
0: But of course it's I, don't I mean know. Is...
1: You, you have to do have to have a kind of like very fundamental change in voting patterns, right? And how much of that is sort of game theoretic versus how much of that is rational. Or sorry, like, you know, how much of that is like rational versus how much of that is sort of like, you know, emotional, impulsive, really fungible at all.
0: Yeah.
1: Right um let me think about this well i mean um... you know to
0: start with you might just mainly ignore voting right and just sort of deal with what can be dealt with <laughs> without voting because right, right you know right. you can innovate quickly with crypto whereas voting only happens at once every four years but i mean there's a whole bunch of inputs into the political system other than voting right there's you know like who gets selected as candidates and who gets on local councils and you know who gets to be like district attorneys, prosecutors, there's a whole bunch of these inputs, right? So you can just sort of play with all those. Once you have an aligned sovereign that's aligned with your interests, you just let it decide how to um, tweak the inputs into the traditional political system. Because that's ultimately what the left does, right? The left doesn't like play politics fair. It first makes a sort of leftist globalist sovereign that has a certain utility function, kind of, right? And then it just says, okay, do whatever you can to the political system to, like, execute that, right? And that's where you get things like this, uh, you know, Trump wanted to, like, you know, he wanted to do, like, a Muslim ban or something, but then they got some judge in Hawaii to, like, veto it or something like that, because there was some procedural reason that they could do that, right? So, so you see, ultimately... What you would ultimately have is something like a market for political influence, um, where you know you just say, "Look, I want outcome X to happen. Uh, go do it, however you can, right?" And we'll pay. We'll right, pay right. You. Just run a yeah. market. We'll, for that. we'll just yeah. pay you. We'll pay you based on results.
1: Right. So basically, yeah, it allows a mercenary elite to actually function. Yeah. Right. Is that the? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can. I can kind of see this happening. This. This sort of makes sense. Just. Just put like bounties on it. Make it more transparent. Solve some of the problems with grifting. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I think I see this. I think I see this making an improvement. Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. So it's been. It has been. Three and, oh and a half God, hours.
0: And, That's crazy. Dude, you, you said two to five hours, and I was like, no way we're going to two hours, but it's actually already three and a half.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the one we did with J- so the one I did with James Pogue it lasted six hours. Oh my god! By the end of it, we were like, we finally beat Lex. Wow! And then this is a week <laughs> before he did Lex did the eight hour podcast with Ball. Oh my god, that was at some
0: point. I actually listened to almost all of that, and it was most like there were a couple of things in there that were worth listening to, but it really wasn't. It really wasn't eight hours of content. I hope. I hope we haven't been that bad. I mean, what do you think?
1: I don't. Know. I I liked it. I like the disagreement. I like the dynamics a lot. Right. These kind of w- when we go deep into like the kind of niche, the kind of you know the kind of like conversation of of like the of the lab of the econ department. Right there, I really like that kind of dynamic. And in terms of what we discussed. Yeah, I think, like, I was having some trouble actually understanding where you were coming from with regards to crypto. Right. But I think, like, it makes a lot more sense to me near the end. Yeah. Maybe for the audience, I be a little bit
0: repetitive. One way to look at it is just, like, you first establish a system that connects your desires with... um. Some kind of execution system and then you, then you get that execution system to go and do stuff and try to get people elected and try to, you know, do whatever it is you need to do, right? But like you, you basically right. can't use the existing legacy institutions to coordinate your movement anymore, right? Yeah. You have to treat those existing institutions as just a set of levers that you can pull. Yes. And there's, and there's, there is no system for, um, a, you know, there are many groups for whom there exists no system outside of the existing legacy political institutions to actually try and coordinate. And those institutions, they're all booby trapped, right? They're all sort of corrupted. So you actually have nowhere, right? And, and, you know, the, the few groups who actually do manage to do well in politics, and I, I don't mean this in any kind of um, nasty way. You know, I mean, for example, look at Jewish Americans, right? What do they have? Well, they have a bunch of these powerful lobbying organizations, which are essentially something like a, you know, well, they're kind of like a sovereign for Jewish Americans that's aligned to the interests of Jewish Americans that has goals. And it then goes and like sort of pursues those goals, Right. Yeah, right, there isn't, yeah, power there isn't and a yeah. Jew. There isn't a Jew party in America, right? <laughs> you know, doesn't exist because that would be stupid, right? It wouldn't win enough votes to get any actual power, right? But there yeah, is a. Yeah, pattern. yeah. This like, is
1: like every lobbying group. Yeah, right. right so
0: yeah. you don't, in order to, to achieve your goals, you don't want to use the political system the way it's intended to be used, right? You you just. Want to create your own system for deciding what you want to do and coming up with a, with a set of policies and, you know, getting everyone to agree on how to compromise with each other. And then once you've decided on that, then you go and lobby and get people elected strategically and do whatever you can, right? And if you don't have one of these sovereigns, you're just going to die out. You're just going to be destroyed, right? Um, and you know, you can, you can look at which groups are getting the shit kicked out of them in modern society. And they all... Yeah,
1: it's the diffuse majority. They
0: all don't have these things, right? So, for example, where is the organisation that represents the interests of ethnic British people? It doesn't exist. There isn't one, right? In fact, it it may even be illegal to make it, Right. It may even be the case that if you founded an organization in Britain that was like, you know, um, the, you know, organization for the political advancement of ethnic British people, it would probably violate some uh, anti-racism law. So you couldn't even have it legally.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I I think like... (laughs) And that, there's kind of two things here. There's looking at like the epiphenomenon epi, epi of like the the huge L that like diffuse majorities take, yeah. And then there's like looking at like the fact that they're diffuse majorities, right? Yeah. Like like that's the thing. There there's no. It it is kind of like you said the coordination mm-hmm. problem, and yeah, I, I do think like yeah. My 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 only problem with the. Mm, with the principal agent problem framing, right. I think it's kind of like correct on an analytical level in terms of, or like on a descriptive level in terms of saying like, this is what's happening. Right. The The, the problem that I mainly have with it is like, there is like the, the suggestion that there's some possibility that if only, you know, if only we let the majority know about this, they would change their preferences and stop, you know, stop the principal agent problem. When like, I, I think there's a lot of problems with the principal basically. Um yeah. But anyways, yeah, it's been...
0: it's It's, it's been it's, three and a half hours, yeah.
1: Yeah, the time really flew. Yep. Um, yeah, I did not expect having a kind of hard cutoff, but I kind of do since it is later in the day. Oh, yeah, it's like... Um, last question of the show, sure. though. Last question of the show. Uh, usually on these long ones, it's difficult to think of something new, but what is something that has too much order, needs more chaos? Something that has too much chaos, needs more order, that we have not talked about today? Oof. Yeah.
0: Um... Something, okay, so the first one, something that's too much order needs more chaos. Um, I'm going to go with AI. Um,
1: More chaos than AI,
0: okay. I think, so there's recently been this um, kind of furore where sort of um, Eliezer Yudkowsky has got mad because um, OpenAI released GPT Chat and that's caused Google to actually start trying to innovate again and they've like gone into panic mode and invited i mean
1: that's not surprising let's be honest here you know if someone mailed you know uncle ted's packages to all the <laughs> ai companies i don't think eliza yukowski would necessarily be sent. yeah
0: right so uh um, <laughs> and i'm not endorsing uncle ted at all here but um yeah i mean um we-, we should do another one to talk about uncle ted by the way and and his ideas about But um, in fact, it's almost like that's the most interesting bit and we didn't get to it, but I will respect the call. So the reason I think we need more chaos is because um, Yukoski, Bostrom, probably a bunch of other people who are AI safetyists... Think that the biggest risk from AI is a technical failure, right? And Gwern as well, right? So they all think that the, the big risk is that somebody's going to misprogram AI and it's going to turn us all into paperclips. Um, whilst I agree with them that this is a risk, I think they've neglected the risk that AI is going to work technically exactly as uh, the designers want. But it will be sort of cucked politically and it will turn us all into, like, it'll, it'll just sort of like be leftism maximization and you'll like, you'll like be forced to become black, gay, trans and a child abuser, uh, in order to, uh, continue to exist. Right? So I think the, so basically there's an argument between the the technical alignment problem and the content problem, and I think a lot of the professional ex-riskologists um, have ignored the risks of bad content. Um, and I think I'm becoming... yeah.
1: yeah you, you, you don't need yeah. to make I, this argument to me. Have you read the yeah. article? Have you read the, the you know, like the my most famous? I have. I have. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, yeah, you will. I don't know. Find this interesting, okay, um, scary. Um, so, 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 so bit, but yeah, so yeah, yeah. So
0: basically, I think we need more chaos. We need more competition. We need to you know, accept that there is some amount of technical risk that we're going to suffer in order to minimize uh, the, the content risk. So it's kind of like balancing two risks rather than maximizing or minimizing one risk and allowing the other one to sort of creep up. So more chaos in AI Uh, What do we need more order in that we have too much chaos in? Um, uh, What do we need more order in that we have too much chaos? Um, I mean, I guess I could just make the boring answer and say that, you know, we basically need Western conservatives to just all be force fed Hanania's articles. Like just basically (laughs) tie them up, you know, use use like clips to 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 keep their eyelids open and just like force them to click through all of his articles on conservative incompetence. Um just 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 you know the 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 Republicans, the Tories, um all of them. They all need to read that shit because I you know it's boring to me because this stuff is obvious to me. But, you know, I'm the exception. Everyone who's conservative needs to be forced to read this shit. The whole, the whole, you know, fucking QAnon shit, the bad epistemology about vaccine damage, you know, they basically, the conservatives need to go and read a bit of less wrong, right? They need to understand that in the long term, it's more powerful to be correct than to be brave. You have to be brave, but you also have to be correct. Mm.
1: Yeah, that, that's, a great, that's a great way to end it, man. Thank you so much it. Uh, for coming on. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to this episode of From the New World with Rocco Miech. If you enjoyed the conversation, the best thing to do is subscribe. You'll get the episode every single week on Mondays, and you'll be able to follow any other bonus episodes and material we put out. Another great thing you can do to help us out is to share with a friend. The odds are, if you know someone who has the same interests, same habits as you, then not only will letting them know about the podcast help us, but hopefully give that person something for them to enjoy. You can also help the show by sharing on social media, by giving out recommendations, by mentioning some of the ideas. It'd be, it's it been really interesting watching what kind of derivative ideas people have had while thinking about the show, and that's only possible because a lot of people are writing those ideas and posting about them. And, as always, there'll be another great episode next week where the podcast returns. Thanks for listening.